Ghouls. Happy Hump Day and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast, brought to you by your best ghoul friends, Lucy and Lindsay. Grab your blankets, snacks and good vibes for tonight's sleepover, where the category is always horrifically spooky. If you want to keep up with us on the socials, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GhoulFriendPod on Twitter and GhoulFriends underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also listen to us on all podcasting platforms where we release new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to follow me on my personal socials, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Lulu underscore Pew. And I'm at Hi It's Lindsay underscore on all social media. Now let's get spooky. Hello, ghouls, and welcome to the Ghoul Friends podcast. Lindsay Bates, how are you doing? Hey, uh, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. You were at a drag show last night, weren't you? I was. I went and seen Alaska Talks. If you're a Drag Race fan, you know it was um, an amazing, amazing show. Um, yeah, I can't believe it took them nearly 10 years to go on tour together because, yeah, it was incredible. Oh, I'm so jealous. I wish I could have been there with you. Um, and we are not alone today. We have a wonderful guest somebody that we both love dearly we love their podcast it is the wonderful candy from house that screams candy how are you doing um i'm good so glad to be here thank you and how have you been um pretty good um hanging in there had some little fun this summer and now it's settling into my favorite season fall and uh my birthday is on tuesday Happy birthday. Happy early birthday. Hope you have a great day. Got the important, yeah, thank you. The important thing is that I always have to look 10 years younger than I actually am. <laughs> 42. I'm like, mm. as long as I look 32, I'm good. She do. Of course you do. Um, before we, well, actually, yeah, we'll go into what this week's um, theme is. This is one that I've been really excited for. And it is breakup movies. We're talking about horror breakup movies. Lindsay, I can't remember. Was this my theme or was this your theme? Because I actually, I, I was wrapping my brain around it. I can't remember who came up with this one. I did, like, there was a few of, like, the ones at the top of our list that we, like, came up with together. We just wanted, like, very typical sleepover vibes. And sometimes those sleepovers are when... One of your best uh, guys, gals, or non-binary pals has a breakup, and you just need to rally round, get the films on, get the ice cream in, maybe a wine or two, and just rally behind them. I think we've all been there, especially in our friendship group. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Experiences. Uh, but before we get into that, as I mentioned, Candy, um, you have your own podcast, which um, me and Lindsay have also been guests on House of Screams. You also have your own cosmetics line as well. Do you want to talk about both of those? And um, if the listeners don't know about either of them, what they're all about? Um, sure. Um, I am the creator slash hostess, um, in the loosest term possible, hostess. Um, of the House That Screams horror podcast. Uh, we have a couple little side casts in there, but mostly um, we're known as sort of like punk rock, rebellious, you know, kids you don't talk to or your parents will get mad type. Um, I mean, it's just, it's people, um, the Baron's uh, Hideout podcast just 
we're like, they're absolute chaos and we love it. So uh, that's the show. We just, uh, we have a feminist side cast with uh, Erica, the other female on the show and I do. And we just released an episode today on Jacob's Wife, uh, the new Barbara Crampton movie, which was awesome. And we started to do a couple non-horror titles. And as for my cosmetics line, which also Erica is my partner, um, we've got some stuff cooking uh, with Lindsay later on. Uh, October is going to be just such a huge month for us. We've got the slasher palette finally, like Freddie, Jason, all the good stuff. Um, everybody's been waiting on that. So that's ready to drop. We're going to be in a beauty subscription box, uh, do some giveaways on Instagram with another company. So I'm hoping that um, we can just keep this party going and, and, and get more pe people to uh, to see what we have to offer because it's a lot of fun and uh, a lot of love goes into that. That's so exciting. And yet me and Lindsay did an episode with you and Erica for Goals Night Out, which was Stepford Wives. And I did read the novella after that, actually, and I loved it. And that was such a fun episode. And me and Lindsay were in Glasgow recently with Sophie, actually, and Sophie showed us one of your palettes. I hadn't seen it like in real life before. And I was like, oh, the colors, oh, all the eye looks, they're, they're amazing. They're amazing. So well done. Thank you. Um, yeah, we had um, the, the Barbara color, uh, that green. I don't usually like greens, but the green in that is so gorgeous. And when she posts, uh, when Sophie posts on Instagram a lot with uh, some looks like when she did that green look, she used that Barbara green. And I'm like, girl, love it. We love to see it. If um, the listeners want to find you on social media, the, the podcast, um, you know, the makeup line, where, where can people find you? Um, I have my finger in so many pies that the best way to find everything is in my link tree. Mm -hmm. um, so link tree slash candy, the final girl, and it's makeup, um, Instagram, you know, I do mostly, uh, horror stuff on my Instagram and then I run all of our socials. So everything's in, in that link tree. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so as we mentioned, today's theme is breakup movies, grab your Ben and Jerry's grab your rosé wine, get the tissues ready. Um, the two movies we're talking about today are pretty intense. Um, the first movie we're speaking about is Candy's Choice, which is Midsummer, uh, which I know that I'm a massive fan of. Lindsay, you're a huge fan of it as well. Um, Candy, why did you choose Midsummer for the theme of breakup movies? Well, this was a movie that really spoke to me. Um, if you listen to any of the House of Screams episodes. Um, I'm very transparent about my life. And uh, it spoke to me on the level of the toxicity of the relationship between Christian and Danny, how she's always apologizing for stuff that he did. And, you know, just these, you know, I'm just so sorry all the time. And like, you're sorry and simping over this piece of shit who, you know, is talking shit about you too, is bros and can't wait to unload you and lying to you and telling you you're overreacting, gaslighting her about shit with her family and her health. And, and so it really spoke to me. It was a very strong message, like, oh my God. And then the movie is just so phenomenal. Ari Aster is my favorite um, director right now in horror. And uh, I love his films. And um, yeah, Midsummer was just one that just left me like wanting more like, I need to revisit this. I need to revisit this. Great. Definitely. I absolutely adore Midsummer. It's, it was definitely my film of 2020. 
it's probably not only one of my favorite horror movies, but it's just one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I know you're a massive fan of Ari Aster, Hereditary and Midsummer, aren't you? Yeah, I absolutely like love him, love both those films. Um, like both Midsummer and Hereditary, I feel like you can watch them over and over and over again and notice something new in each of them. Um, I also kind of love as well, like Ariaster is so clever and he makes films for people who carefully watch films because everything is there. You just have to be open to see it. And I think that like with Midsummer especially and like with breakdowns of relationships, the signs are often always there. You just have to be open to see it. And I feel like Midsummer is very similar in that sense. The whole film, the whole plot, it lays the whole plot out for you. You just need to be open to see it. Yeah, truly. I mean, the attention to detail is uh, phenomenal. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was just swept away. We did, uh, on, on when we covered uh, Midsummer and Hereditary My Show, we did them back to back. And it's night and day, but, you know, also very similar that, you know, the attention to detail. One's very dark, one is so like blindingly bright, but there's, you know, definitely issues. Uh, Ari Aster likes to work with grief. No, I am in complete agreement with both of you. I think we've spoken about this um, a few times on the podcast. Ari Aster, I absolutely adore. As you said, Lindsay, with both films, I haven't seen his student film yet, but I need to. There's so much foreshadowing and you notice something new every time. Um, whether it's an intentional piece of foreshadowing in the background or it's the character arc. And I think we'll get into it, but I think a lot of people can relate to Danny's story. I know that I certainly can. Um, and Ari Aster has even said himself that Midsummer is his breakup movie um, and he very much relates to Danny. Um, you, can you can definitely see that in the writing of this. Our other movie for today is my choice and it is The Invisible Man another equally traumatic movie that will make you cry but we love it. The Invisible Man you know surrounds a very toxic relationship um, I think it's a great take on what was a classic story you know the HG uh, based on the HG Wells um, story from uh, the 1800s and then we also had the 1930s movie um, are you a fan of The Invisible Man had you seen it but I, you had seen it before the podcast, I assume, but are you, are you a fan of it? Oh, I loved it. Um, it was definitely a fresh take. And as someone, you know, um, who's clearly, I, I've been through um, domestic violence. Um, and, you know, I immediately, like, Elizabeth Moss is just a phenomenal actress, like, blows me away and everything. Um, but she was so great in this. And just the message of the film it's so symbolic of so many things, but it's, it's so clear from moment one, like she is a damaged person from this relationship. She's trying to get away and you know, um, it's only going to go downhill from there. Yeah, definitely. Elizabeth Moss, we absolutely stand. Um, I remember seeing her in Mad Men years ago and I loved her, but since then, you know, Handmaiden's Tale, Invisible Man, like every single role she just throws herself into. And I think this is my favorite role she's ever done though, to be honest, like absolutely fantastic. Lindsay, are you a fan of The Invisible Man? I mean, we covered this um, in a different show before. Yeah, I, I love this film. I love Elizabeth Moss as well. Like she totally throws herself into every single thing she does. Everybody she's ever worked with is just so 
highly complimentary about her acting talent and as well like this is a completely fresh take on an old story that we've that we've known of uh, the invisible man um but it's so relevant as well like unfortunately domestic violence is still so pervasive um we just had like another woman in the UK killed just walking around just walking to a friend's house just woman dies every three days at the hands of a man in the UK so these issues are still extremely prevalent and I think that um bringing the invisible man story into this is an interesting way to do it because you do if you come from that background you do have those fears you are also on edge you have that anxiety all the time that they're going to follow you they're going to find you somehow and then actually making the perpetrator of that someone with the ability to have an invisible suit is a really interesting way to modernize the invisible man's story which is what like 120 years old yeah, um, I think it's very allegorical. Um, my, uh, I, I had a young marriage and uh, I was a victim of domestic abuse. And what happened with a domestic dispute, at least I was living in uh, the state of Texas at the time, they would come and he had punched holes in the wall and, and, and hurt me and stuff. And they would just make him leave for 24 hours. Like the, the police were not on your side. It's so hard to get something to stick. And he... he I, did, I found out about that time, he had a prior, I was his second wife, and he had uh, gone to jail for beating her up. But it takes a long time and a lot of battering and like what happens at that point and you start to doubt yourself and, and other people start to doubt you. And, you know, it, it's so, it destroys you. And, you know, so it's sort of like the police, you know, all these authority people, they can't really help her. She has to help herself you know, through this. So it's like a breakup movie, but it's one of those, like, you know, it, it takes an even more dangerous turn, you know, um, than like a typical breakup movie where, where like you're sad, like she's fucking scared. Yeah, definitely. Um, I can, I can relate to that. I recently, and I, I don't, I, I've spoken about it a little bit on the podcast before, but only recently, um, funnily enough, I did a book review for Hear a Scream, um, it's, it's a really good book I recommend anybody read called In the Dream House it's about um, an abusive relationship between two women and I kind of wrote about my experience after that and as somebody that was also a victim of domestic abuse for like five years previously before when I was in my early teens and then when I was in my late teens and early 20s you can relate so much to that story in The Invisible Man of you know women are seen as you almost go you feel like you're going crazy because everybody else is assuming you're crazy so seeing that in this film I was like I can relate to that so much because you have these ideas instilled in your head and people like oh, I can't imagine that that guy was ever like that because they never saw behind the scenes and it's like you can you really start to believe that you're going crazy it's like did, did I make this up in my head so like the and just the such satisfying endings in both of these films which we will get to I think like it, it for me, it was such a cathartic release. Like, like you know, I feel like a lot of people can can relate to that. It's a very like you go girl moment in both of these films. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I I think uh, it's so interesting to pair these two films together um, because they're both dealing with two different types of abuse and gaslighting. 
And, um, you know, so it's not, like I said, like these aren't just breakup films. They're also, you know, horror films that we've got before. We've got all the things that are needed there. But as um, I just spoke about in Jacob's Wife on The House of Screams, it's, yeah, it's um, interesting to use uh, this kind of uh, platform. Horror is the best platform. Please edit the other out. But horror is the best platform to get a social message across because you don't have the constraints of like, oh, it's a drama. Oh, it's a comedy. It's a whatever. It's horror. You can make your own rules, create you know your own things. And uh, so horror is the best way to get a social message across, I believe, honestly. And these films both get a really strong social message um, across about uh, the victimization of women, um, you know, and I think that's really important to see. And I love it when people, you know, they're paying for the blood and guts, but they're staying for the message. Yes, definitely. I mean, especially in recent years, um, you know, we speak about horror as the underdog of cinema, but often pushes the boundaries on Speaking about the things that commercial cinema, other genres are maybe a bit too hard, uh, you know, don't want to talk about, you know, we spoke about on uh, House of Screams Get Out as well. And you hardly see any cinema talk, talking about um, racism in that light. And Jordan Peele did a fantastic job um, with that film, as we spoke about. And as you said, the stories of women, um, you know, we've had recent films like Fit and Assassination Nation as well that talk about issues around transphobia and actually have trans actors and actresses playing the roles and it's people are just more willing in horror to speak the real horrors that people experience in real life and the real truth so no I couldn't have said it better myself um but we will get into our first movie so let's speak about Midsummer. Christian says that you've got some special thing planned yeah, it's like a crazy nine-day festival. It only happens every 90 years. Hi. Hello, Victor. You can't speak? You can't move. But this opens you up to the influence. And it breaks down your defenses. Trust me. Right? We'll start off with the IMBD plot. Um, Midsummer, the IMBD plot is as follows. A couple travels to Scandinavia to visit a rural hometown labeled Swedish Midsummer Festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. This movie was released in 2019. As we mentioned, it's directed and written by Ari Aster. And the cast includes Florence Pugh, Jack Raynor, and Vihelm Bomgren. Bomgren? Apologies if I butchered that last name. Um, The box office, this movie had a $9 million budget and it grossed $47.9 million in um, 
the box office, which is pretty good. However, I feel like over the past year, two years, I don't know if you guys agree with me, but like Midsummer consistently gets so much love online, um, especially on Twitter. I'm sure that both of you probably, have you both seen that? Yes. I actually saw something about it today that was not relating to this conversation. Um, you know, um, I reference it a lot myself. You know, like I'm still talking about this movie and uh, my stepdaughter, she works at a movie theater. So I have the full size from the release of it in my living room. It's massive. Oh, wow. Love this film. Hello. <laughs> so relevant. So I, we kind of spoke there about our like initial thoughts of this film, but I'm curious because like, as, as we've all mentioned, you kind of have a different experience with this film as you watch it again and again. Lindsay, what were your first thoughts when, when you first watched Midsummer? What did you think of it? The first time I finished watching Midsummer, I was just like, well, it's a movie. <laughs> I just, there was so much. And I'm like, this is going to take a second to process. Because I was obviously comparing with Hereditary as well. And I remembered seeing that in the cinema. And then all the bits clicked into place as I was watching the credits. And I'm like, I fully understand what that film was about. It took me a minute with Midsummer. It's a bit longer. There, there's a lot going on in the plot. Um, I had previously covered just this film and the podcast episode was the same length as the movie so there's a lot going on so it's like the second time I watched it I was it, I was just full of rage at the male characters and then the third watch before uh, before this recording I, it was the I felt like cathartic because I was kind of more following it through Danny's eyes rather than hating all these horrible male characters in the film. I was just like, this is a good thing for her. She learns a lot in this trip. She gets rid of a lot of the dead weight in her life and then she can just, she's found her community and she, and she can just be happy. So I think that's another thing about this film. I don't know if you guys agree, like I've gone through a journey every single time I've watched it and I have different feelings every time I watch it. I agree with that for a second. Um, I wanted to say, like, um, that was kind of my hot take on it. We were like, what, Candy? Because I was like, you know, um, I'd seen it a couple of times before we had done the episode, but I was like, I really identify with Danny. And I'm not condoning, um, like, the the eugenic pagan cult here, but um, Danny finally has a place where she belongs. And I, you know, you can tell... Um, that there are real feelings like, um, oh my gosh, I'm doing it again. The, the character, what's his name? Um, the friend, uh, the Swedish Christian? Friend. Not Christian. Um, what's his name? Uh, Pele. Pele, there, thank you. I'm so awful. Like, please add that out. Like I said, like uh, this nausea medicine makes my short-term memory go. But anyway, um, so with him, you could tell he actually cared about her. You know, like when he comes to her and he has that whole, do you feel held by him? Um, and uh, I thought that was powerful. And when she wins the May Queen, he comes up and he like really kisses her. He's the one that reminds, uh, you know, her fuck ass, fuck boy of a boyfriend. Oh, it's her birthday today, you know? So it's like, I'm not like condoning that, but I like seeing that that's, 
little smile she finally has at the end. It's the first time she's really, really smiling. You know what I mean? In the film. And so she's found her place. And I, I mean, and it is a cathartic thing because after everything she's been through, she's lost everything. The one person she had is a piece of shit that she can't depend on. But then there's this whole community that was like, you're, fan, you're the family now. That's what they say. You're the family now. You know, you're the May Queen. And, uh, you know, it puts her, thrust her into a position of power. And as the, you know, she goes on and, and the more and more flowers on her, it's like the weight of that power. But then she smiles, you know, at the end, like I said. So I have a feeling like something between her and Pele, what's going to happen, you know, and I like that she chose Christian, you know, like, okay, I'm, you know what, fuck you. I got powered out. And I like seeing these little power trips, especially when he's just been taking her down a peg, a peg, a peg, a peg, you know, every time he talks to her. He's not only a horrible boyfriend, but he's a horrible friend. That's a whole different conversation. But, you know, I, I felt that way. I and mean, people are like, how can you be happy for Danny? I'm like, I wouldn't say I'm happy, but she found her place. And I think that's part of the message here, a place where she is held. Definitely. I think like the way you described it there, Lindsay, being a journey, the more times you watch this, I certainly felt that. I mean, at this point, I've probably seen it like 15 to 20 times. Like, I love this film. Um, but the first time I watched it, I didn't love it. Visually, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely stunning. And it took me a minute with Hereditary as well to, to really get it. Um, and then the second time I watched it, I just, I, I think with the first time and the second time, that jump scene, it just made my jaw drop. And it was so like, the only way I can describe it is haunting. Like this film haunted me afterwards. And I didn't quite realize how much I related to Danny. So like, I really looked at myself and like the situations I'd been in and like, I definitely dated a Christian before. Um, but like, the more I watched it, and got the foreshadowing and like you like you said candy do i condone like cults and maybe the way they represented cults and this and all that kind of stuff no but i understand that annie finds a home here and even in some of those first interactions when you rewatch it like they say to her welcome home not like um just welcome it's those little things and those little details and she hasn't had that in so long I mean we start off this film we'll, we'll talk about it in a second but we start this off this film in utter tragedy you know her sister is dealing with significant mental health issues and she loses all of her family in one go that's so much trauma to go through at once and you know she's got next to no support um so you kind of you do feel happy for her at the end you know to find this family and that smile that Florence Pugh does I mean that's an iconic piece of cinema now like not even just in horror I think most film buffs know that scene the flower crown and that slow smile it's just beautiful like it's so satisfying um so no I I agree with you I think anybody that watches this film and at first really doesn't like it because it's not for everyone it's a two and a half hour movie it's a very art house style film I would encourage you to watch it again at least once and then see what you think about it. Um, but we'll get into the plot, just like the key, kind of key overall plot and kind of key scenes and get your thoughts. Um, so as we kind of mentioned, we have Danny, who's a psychology student, and she has her sister, Terry, who's bipolar. 
she's getting these messages from her sister and we can tell this isn't the first time that Terry's reached out to her. Um, she's missed some of these messages. They're a little bit worrying. Um, yeah, and then we have Christian on the phone being the utter dick that he is and kind of is just like, oh, you know, this is just what your sister always does. And it's just kind of like um, not taking anything seriously. And then we obviously have that really horrific scene where um, Terry takes her own life and takes their parents' life in the process as well. How did you two feel about this scene and like the, the crying scene as well with Christian? That like hit me in the heart, that just bawling. I mean, it was straight from the gut. I mean, you felt it hit you in the chest, that grief. That's something that also mirrored hereditary, um, you know, in that point where it's just like that abject, complete grief, screaming, sobbing, ugly crying, and, and that wailing that is, it, it's just like my entire world just got taken from me. And what do I have left? Um, I thought it was very powerful. And um, what a note to start out on. Lindsay, what about you? Yeah, like when you see like all the bodies of our family and the kind of like the way in which Terry has decided to take her own life as well, you're just, I, my first thought was just like this poor lassie, like she must have been so tormented to do something like that to herself because it's very extreme. And then, like I feel like straight off the bat you're just like we're gonna get like one of the performances of the year for Florence Hugh because that crying scene like you say like hits you right in the gut like she is crying from the depths of her soul like she's destroyed right now and that's all you get from it you don't get anything else it's just some like what a way to start a film Definitely. And, you know, one of the things, and please feel free to jump in with like your little tidbits and like things that you notice, but like even the second time I'm watching this, that first, well, one of the first scenes, one of the art pieces in the background essentially gives the plot away because we have the bear on fire. And it's just like, it's those little things that you notice, but um, yeah, that crying scene still gets to me because that's the reality of it as well. If you were to go through something like that, it's not it wouldn't be regular crying it's it's wailing because you've lost everything and I can't say I've seen many performances on that raw like Florence Pugh's was in that moment like she deserves an Oscar just for that scene alone in my opinion um so we have this we have obviously that tragedy at the start and then we're introduced to some of our other main characters we had Christian on the phone we meet Christian and we meet his friends um Josh and Mark and they're all PhD students, anthropology students, um, from the get-go, you know that Christian just wants to break up with Danny, and we get these gaslighting scenes, and Mark, tell, what do you both think of Mark? Because I cannot stand this man. Oh, I cannot. I was like, couldn't wait for him to die. I was hoping, <laughs> I'm like, kill this guy. He is such a piece of shit. Like, he yeah. Well, just the worst, the fucking worst. It's just like pure searing hatred. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boy Central. Absolutely. And it's just, 
the way it goes on, it's just, oh, it frustrates me so much. It's just like, do you not have one ounce of empathy in your body whatsoever? Like, what's wrong with people? But yeah, I hate him. Yeah. I was so happy when, when he died. You can tell that's the kind of guy that gives all of his friends relationship advice. He's never been in a relationship for more than five minutes. Yeah. Well, who's going to date somebody like that? <laughs> well, you can at say Christian pretends, you know, this guy doesn't pretend at all. It's all right there on the table. And you're like, I don't think I like this buffet. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we have we have those kind of initial scenes. Um, you know, he's obviously Danny's gone through this tragedy and Christian's just kind of thinking about himself really it's like oh you know I don't want to be with her and then we get the you know the kind of scenes running up to like the party and he decides that he's going to go to this um Swedish festival known as Midsummer because um Ellie um is going there and um Josh obviously wants to do Josh wants to do his PhD on the Midsummer Festival that's why he's going but um Christian decides to go he hasn't told Danny but then he says, oh, wait, I told you at the party. And then we have that scene where, um, you know, he's kind of saying to his friends, um, oh, I've invited her, uh, but she's not going to go. Like, what did, what did you both, like, think of these scenes? Because I was just like, you are such a dick, Lindsay. That's basically my sentiments. What a dick. It's him, you know, he's looking out for number one, um, Christian. So he's like, you know, he's going to break up with her, then her family dies, and then... He's like, well, now I can't break up with her, you know, and she found out about the trip. So I had to invite her, but she's not going to really go like, you know, it's just like, what a motherfucker, like, oh my God. And, you know, and Danny's like, yeah, yeah, I want to go, you know, and they're kind of like, well, shit, because he was going to go and you know, the Swedish milkmaids and all that stuff. And I'm like, oh, you, mm. there, there are not enough words for that um I, I was very angry and then her apologizing about it all the time I, I mean and the thing is is people are like candy you do that I do I'm better you know now than I was about it but I'm still one of those people that's constantly apologizing and they're like why are you sorry you, you you're just it's fine you feel your feelings and you don't be sorry but you know I mean I you know because I have mental health issues myself uh that are pretty severe severe anxiety which uh, Danny has in the film. So I, I saw a lot of myself in Danny, but it was just like, I know that it, it stresses people out or drives people away. So I'm always like, you know, I, I talk about my anxiety and then I'm like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. You know, cause I don't want to lose anybody um, because I want to drive them away. And that's how people will make you feel. It's like, I can't put up with your shit right now. You're stressing me out, go away. And you're just like, but no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'll just say, I'm sorry and it'll be okay. And I won't do it again. And you see that struggle in her, and God, it is so painful. Definitely. I think, Eva Lindsay. It's like this weird, it's kind of almost like a toxic behavior that we're told as a child. Like, if you say sorry, the bad thing will stop. And I've kind of like similarly done that in relationships before as well. Like, if you kind of, if you end up in like a bit of a bicker or something, and you're just like, oh, I'll just apologize and then it'll stop. Um, or if they're doing something, you're like, oh, well, I'll just apologize or it'll stop. Or if you have a partner that doesn't know how to behave themselves when you're out in public and then you just find yourself apologizing for them all the time and you think, oh, that'll fix everything. But 
I kind of as I've grown up I'm just like sorry means nothing like if it's not backed up by actions um and I think that's an unfortunate thing for Danny. like she thinks if she apologizes that it's going to change like the other person's behavior and it's just not the case um in regards to Christian like consistently talking about wanting to break up with Danny I can't help but like watching it like this third time be like it'd be nicer if he actually did it's like it's crueler for you to keep this going on and that shows how extra toxic he is because I think there's a certain part of him who's like not willing to admit that he doesn't want to let her go he bitches and moans to his friends about her and maybe he's not feeling it but he probably doesn't want to be single either and that's why he's holding on to it if I can interrupt I have a thought I think it's more that Christian is one of those people that you know thinks he's the good guy you know he really is convinced and, and he, by doing by staying with her it's his good deed of the fucking millennium you know <laughs> yeah. I'm doing her a favor you know that's what it feels like to me like I'm staying with her because she needs me but like I could you know I'm I'm actually a good guy I'm not a bad guy but it's clear that he's a very bad guy he, he has mm. or feelings even with his friends he'll still they're fucking, you know, doctorate studies and, and shit like that. Like, this guy has no scruples, but he thinks he's the good guy. We're always the hero in our own stories. He's so delusional. Advice for anybody listening who is on dating apps. If a guy has nice in their profile, swipe left. They are not nice. <laughs> Great. <laughs> You're so true, though. He definitely has this hero complex, and I feel like maybe part of the reason why he stays with Danny is because it makes him feel better about himself. He's like, I can't be a bad guy because I'm helping my girlfriend who I don't want to be with, but you know, she's been through this tragedy and um, look at me like being there for her when he's not. And both of you mentioned about the apologizing. I am definitely victim of that as well. I feel like as women, we are told from a very young age to always apologize and accommodate for other people. Um, and to always be like the bigger person and you just like I, I scream at my tv sometimes because Danny's apologizing for things that she shouldn't apologize for even like making excuses like when Christian forgets her birthday he, she's like oh it was my fault you know she's always taking the blame I didn't remind him um but when when you are in that kind of relationship as well you don't want people to see that and you're in such denial as well that you're going to justify it by any means necessary and always take the blame um I don't know if you two agree with that but as women in general I feel like we're all victims of of apologizing constantly yes um it's certainly something that you see a hell of a lot more frequently in women um you know we're supposed to be you know the great forgivers and and the, the we're supposed to be the nurturers at all times you know and you know we don't <sighs> it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's in society. It's the way that we're raised. It's the women we see around us. We're passing that still down to us because our mothers did it and our grandmothers did it. It's been around. It's as old as time. You know, we fix things. We are the, we're in charge of like the emotional side of the relationship. Yes, definitely. Um, so then we get the, the scenes where they're um you know on the flight and then they're they're going to the festival um 
I know we'll probably talk about like here and there about some of our favorites because this film is shot beautifully that is one of my favorite shots when Danny's in the bathroom having like a panic attack and then it moves into the flight I think that's done beautifully like these run-up shots when they're driving as well to the festival and the camera's upside down on the road like that's such a mind fuck and I love that that's like very Ari Aster um yeah they arrive at the festival and the festival happens every 90 years as well um so it's, a, it's you know it's something that's very rare it's once in a generation kind of um thing to experience so they all go to the festival um they meet another couple there called um Simon and Connie and straight from the bat the mushrooms get taken out and we have this like psychedelic trip and this is where we first see like the, the signature style of this film like the, the whole time even at night time it's still bright this film is like so saturated you know it's just like greenery everywhere and what, what did you both um think of these like first scenes um like actually like at the festival it was like uber technicolor kind of experience like it was so bright and we don't have a lot of horror movies um that take place in in this kind of brightness and I think that makes it all the more horrifying but with brightness you there's there's no shadows to hide everything is there and um you know I I the colors and the uh everything it just enhances um the abject horror of it I believe, you know, and it, you can look at that as symbolic. You can look at that as just like literal, like everything is right there in front of you. And when you, um, I want to backtrack just for a second, the very opening of the, you know, where that thing opens up before the credits, it has the entire movie on it. So everything that happens in the movie is right there in front of you. And then, and then you mentioned the artwork. So it's all over the place, but, um, you know, I just love the artistic style of this, and I think it just enhances absolutely everything. What about you, Lindsay? Yeah, um, I absolutely love the cinematography in this film. Um, one of the things that I think is great about this film is setting it in Sweden in the summer where there's very little darkness. It's almost like everything is everything is having a light shone on it there is no respite from your feelings during this difficult period like we have the like the daytime where you can see everything in normally nighttime it's when we can curry in our houses get the curtains shut you know cozy in our beds and you're safe whereas everything is in bright 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 light sunshine and there's no hiding from this and Danny has to face her grief. Danny has to face up to the fact that her relationship is not in a good place and that Christian is not a good person for her. Definitely. I think that's one of the most like horrifying things with the film, at least for me anyway, um, is for so long in, in horror, even as a kid, I was scared of the dark. And you always like everything that you oh you were as well, Candy. <laughs> I still am. I sleep with a TV on. I love that because I, I I I'm still a bit scared of the dark too. But you always think it's things in the shadows you need to be terrified of. But just as you both said there, with Midsummer, everything's there in the open. You can't you can't escape it. Even when you shut your eyes, it's going to be so bright. Like you you can't you can't escape it. And everything's out there, and it's so different. From anything else I've seen in horror I think a lot of people have and I think that just makes it all the more haunting 
um, we'll get to our kind of like first kind of gory scene, um, called horror scene if you want. For me, it's it's the most horrific scene in in this film. Um, we have the jumping. Um, so we have two of the um, two of the residents. Uh, for the Midsummer, Vest Midsummer Festival to the elders, if you will. They had a, a dinner uh, beforehand where they kind of all met and things like that. And they're having this ceremony to essentially kind of kick off the festival. Um, and you don't quite know what's going to happen. We have that scene where there's like, they cut them, somebody cuts their hands on this stone and it's this bright, stark white cliff, like pure, pure white. Um, and it's such a slow build as both both of these um residents jump jump off off this cliff. Like you can see it happening as they kind of go to the cliff and think it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. And when they do jump, um you see everything. Like it is gory. It is very gory. What did you both think of this? Because like my jaw just hit the floor. Um, I liked, um, actually, you know, I'm, I'm a gore hound. I love gore. And I like that, you know, this blinding, I almost felt like I needed sunglasses. It was so blindingly bright. And then that lady jumps in and you just see Danny kind of taken aback, but everybody's screaming and she kind of gets this like ringing in her ears, but she's the one that you don't think can handle this. And she's just kind of like goes to sort of numb and she's in you and, and through that like sort of ringing in her ears, you're hearing everybody freaking out like the you know Connie and um her boyfriend her well, fiance um they're screaming Simon they're screaming and everything and then you know even uh Christian and, and you know they're they're all freaking out and she's kind of standing there not being able to hear completely like just shutting down almost and uh then that I mean, it's just right there. There's no pause. There's no buildup. You, you, you know, there's buildup, I guess, but like, there's no pausing. It just keeps going. And then next comes the guy, but he didn't jump right. So they all take turns with that mallet and you're just like, uh, um, wow. <laughs> like, I mean, I was taken aback. Like, I, I don't know. Wow. I was kind of like Danny. I was just like, um, what? Yeah, I think as well, like, it is very gory. I mean, there, there, we've we've seen gorier in horror, but I think it's one of those touchy subjects when it comes to suicide. Suicide is still a very uncomfortable thing for people to watch and for people to face. I think that is part of it as well. Um, you know, Pelle does mention, um, or sorry, somebody else at the festival mentions that, you know, once they reach the age of 72, um, th this is what they do. They'll take their own life. They see it as seasons and they want control of how their life ends rather than you know being subject to illness or um just growing older um but it's I I, I don't know Lindsay do you agree like I, I just feel like it's one of those things that people are still haunted by when they see it yeah absolutely like it's a big shock when it happens you don't expect it to happen and then I think the special effects are so great here like when you see the skull being caved in and you can see like bits of teeth and stuff like it's so well done it seems very realistic and then like you say suicide is taboo um 
it's in like these people's culture to take their own life at 72 they don't want to be seen as a drain on their community um I feel like 72 is quite young still I think there's still a bit of life in you when you're 72 but that's just me um but that's what they chose to do that's what they chose to do um it's so interesting though seeing it all through Danny's eyes seeing the whole thing play out through Danny's eyes because she has no idea what's happening obviously she has this backstory of three of her family members all um well one of them taking their own life and two of them being collateral damage um so it's interesting seeing it through that lens um and I think that just like adds to the the shock value of what we're seeing on screen and it's definitely also like a culture shock because they give it a pomp and circumstance like uh, you know where it's like well, it's not really suicide. They, they're, they're sacrificing themselves in this ritual mm. to make sure that they are fruitful and um, have good luck with crops and, and, and all these things. Like it's part of a ceremony. So therefore it tries to take away that taboo. Like, no, 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 this is part of the ritual. And this is, they're honored for this, you know? And so it's like a, yeah, they, they're not useful quote unquote anymore um so yeah they they're like well you know kind of like I volunteer as tribute it's an honor to do this and um yeah so that that so they try to you know take away that taboo whereas like obviously it's clearly to you know people from other you know uh I think uh you know Connie and uh yeah yeah her fiance Simon I can't remember his name Connie and Simon, you know, they're from the UK and it's taboo. Uh, our American um, visitors, taboo. But to them, it's it's part of the ceremony. It's an honor. And it's like, no, the fuck is not. Like, wow, I can't ever accept that. Definitely. I mean, me- mental health, even though we it has been spoken about more in recent years mental health is something across the world not even just in western culture but there's still so much that we need to break down when it comes to and it's still very much a behind closed doors um and sometimes people just don't want to face face the reality of it it's just there's a couple things you know that are very hard hitting for us to see on screen like animal abuse um anything with children and suicide is definitely up there as well it's just one of those kind of hard lines for for many people um but we'll we'll move on to because this is this is a big film <laughs> it's a, lot it's a long one it's a long one it's a long one um so slowly but surely our group is starting to teeter off um you know simon goes missing well apparently he's taking a train and then Connie tries to to catch catch him um on the train she misses him and then Connie goes um and we also have the scene Christian being the arsehole that he is decides actually you know what Josh I'm gonna do my PhD on the Harga as well which if somebody that works in academia like you've had years to decide what your PhD thesis is going to be on you do not fucking decide last minute oh, I'm going to do it on uh, on the same thing as you um and that just irked me um what did you two you two think of that and also when like some of the characters are starting to fall off you're thinking like oh like shit's gonna go down and yeah what did you both think 
Well, Christian's, you know, true colors. He's one of those, like we said, we had, he has sort of this, like, I'm a hero. I'm a good guy, but you know, he will absolutely steal his friend's doctorate, um, you know, project and be like, oh, we can co-do it. He's like, what the fuck? <laughs> what kind of fucking friend are you? Like, how does he not know that Christian is a complete dipshit? Like he's friends with him, listens to him talk shit about his girlfriend all the time, who's clearly been through some horrible things and needs him. But how does how was he surprised when Christian just steals his thunder and then Christian goes around like, oh, our project. And then it's my project. So when Josh goes missing, he doesn't care because now he gets all the credit. I mean, he's like, oh, we don't associate with him. And I'm like, oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> He's like, oh, no. Not really. That winds me up as well. Like, how can you drop one of your friends just like that? Like, oh, my thesis, my thesis. And then you're just so willing to drop someone who I'm presuming you've been friends with for years and years and years um, just over a project. Like, what is wrong with you? It makes you wonder what is sacred to Christian besides himself. And I don't think there is anything. I've just been thinking that now actually, like, Ari asked her, can you drop the prequel that's about Christian and his mum's relationship? <laughs> I, I need to see how this woman has reigned him because you know it's, <laughs> there's three people in your relationship, like you, your male partner and his mum, <laughs> and she's reigned him. Lindsay's yeah. spitting all the facts tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll psychoanalyze this shit. There's a lot there. Psychoanalogy in this film is actually, you know, kind of the theme. Oh, yeah, definitely. 100%. Um, and then we have Josh, Josh's demise, um, because he's been sneaky. You know, he goes into the um, the sacred commune and looks at the the runic text because before this like you said we've seen other artwork as well and we've seen these runes and obviously you know he's doing his PhD thesis on this he's not supposed to go in there but he does and takes photos I have a thought if I can interject yeah I really don't think he would have done that had Christian not said I'm doing this he was trying to get a leg up on Christian who just stole what he's been working on for years so I feel like that win is on Christian. That's true. I'm quite happy to blame that on Christian because at the end of the day, everything's Christian's fault. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, truly. Um, and then we get this 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 other death, which is of Josh, this um other kind of gory scene. And we see that the person that kills Josh is in a suit, a skin suit of Mark. Um, what did you guys think of this? And also, like, when Chris, uh, not Christian, jumping ahead there when Josh dies when he gets hit on the head he's doing this like groaning and it's kind of like the wailing at the start it's quite haunting and it's very like raw is all I can describe it as what did you two think of of this death um I, I got Leatherface vibes a little bit you know because it, it had that surreal feeling you know we looked up and he's like what are you doing in here Mark and Mark's been missing and then you realize that's someone wearing Mark's skin, you know, because when we get the, you know, little hint of that earlier on, oh, the kids are playing skin the fool. Um, Mark was clearly a fool. But, <laughs> you know, it's, 
yeah, it gave me Leatherface vibes. Really did the the sounds, um, wearing of the skin. It was, it, but it you know it had its own flavor. But yeah, I I thought it was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, I can see that. What about you, Lindsay? I love that when like Mark is kind of well, I say lured away to like get um, bumped off. It's just this like very attractive lady going, "You'll come with me." <laughs> He just goes with it. Like, he's that confident, stupid, I'm not sure which one, that he's getting his whole offer. And he's, he's just like, to his pals, like, I'm I'm going with her. And he's never seen again until this. Um, I, I love this, like, gratuitous use of Mark's face on someone else's face to try and bump Josh off. Like, it's gross and it's, like, intriguing. I'm like, how did they do that? Um, and yeah, very, very much Leatherface vibes. I it, it was so easy to kill her. Like she could have just winked. <laughs> she didn't even have to say anything. Um, yeah, you're both right. And also, like him pissing on that tree. You could have walked two further seconds into the bushes. Why did you have to do it out in the open? You fucking idiot. That and then the elders me up so much. Like I hate people who just piss outside. Like go to a toilet. You're not an animal. You're right. And um, you know, and then after he pissed on it, and and the, I mean, literally the guys are like crying about it. That's are you know, and, and cursing him out. Because if you notice, we don't always get a translation in this. And Ari Aster did that on purpose, so we don't we only understand what the characters understand. There's a couple of times we get some translation. He's like, you know, this son of a bitch pissed on our ancestors. And, and then later on, he's like, before he goes off with the girl, right before, like, oh, they were, they're still crying about their fucking tree. Like, you know, Pelly was just kind of like, that's our ancestors. You know, we, we put them there. He's like, it's a dead tree. Well, I mean, it is literally. Don't, <laughs> why would you, uh, you know, you don't feel bad at all. That's very true about the translations, but it's just so many little details, like everything in this film. Ari Aster, and the whole crew, I should say, not just Ari Aster, but everything has been done with a purpose. And the design, and the costume design to the sound, cinematography, the scripting, everything is done for a reason. Um, so no, you're totally right there, uh, Candy. And I hadn't even realised that. That's something new I've learned about Midsummer today. Like, you learn something new every day about this movie. Um... But we'll we'll jump forward and say Josh is missing. Christian doesn't really give a shit. Um, you know, he's just like living his best life. He's like, it's fine, I've got this thesis all to myself now. Um, but we'll jump forward to the, the May Festival as well. So there's the, the scene for um finding who the May Queen's gonna be. And um th- this is quite a big tradition, not even just in Sweden, but in Nordic culture. Um Ireland as well, a bunch of places have May festivals and May queens, and we have this, this dance, um, beautiful scene, dance with the, the, the pole, and it's essentially saying who, who can dance for the longest without getting exhausted. And again, mushroom tea. <laughs> so we're having a little bit of a trip and like... This is a drug-promoting culture here. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so we have this dancing scene, but at the same time, Christian is getting... Um, seduced should we say by one of the um girls at the festival before this like she's had this planned you know we have the scene where um she's been putting a little bit of hairs in in the pie 
a little bit of blood in the in the drink. Did you two notice the color of the drink straight away? Because I was like, oh yeah, like what? Yeah. Man, how could you not notice that? Looks like grapefruit juice or something. Mm-hmm. When everybody else had more of like a yellow, orangey, and that was just like straight pink. <laughs> and I'm like, ew. But we also saw the tapestry mm-hmm. that spell. And, you know, um, earlier they had found the love rune. So I also wanted to point out, uh, I, I think it's Siv or Siv, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, we have a woman running this community who is the the um, the go-to. And yes. she's like, oh, you know, our, I, I forget the girl, but she's chosen you, you know? And he's like, uh, I don't, I'm not comfortable. Christian's like, I'm not comfortable with this. But um, I like that uh, we, it's a powerful woman, you know, doing these things. And she's like, oh, I love her. And she put a love spell on you. It's totally okay. We give her approval. And he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Lindsay, what do you think of this? It's, uh, it's, it's Maja that um, kind of takes an interest in Christian. And as Candy said, like slowly trying to seduce him. And then we have like the chief elder being like, you've been chosen and even though you can see he has an interest in her, he does it. We'll get to it in a second, but he doesn't really have a choice in the matter, does he? No, yeah, like, you can see earlier, earlier on, like when they first get there, and then she she kicks him and then gives him a look when they're like doing the dancing, and he's so quick to just like get involved. But um, <laughs> yeah, he's got no choice in the matter. I am very curious as to what well, I was gonna say. I'm very curious as to why they chose him, but I think. It's because he is so like weak of mind that um, he's the most easily pliable out of them all. Well, I um, if you know anything about like runes, um, the runes are actually throughout this film, and those are very important in Nordic cultures. But uh, so like you know, his runic thing, you know, was correct, and also. Ari Aster himself, I don't know if you guys have Shudder there, uh, the streaming service, which is horror. Um, Eli Roth does a show called History of Horror. And he had Ari Aster on there. And Ari Aster is like, this is a eugenic pagan cult. Now, if you know what eugenics are, um, he, you know, has to, has to be white. You know, you notice there were no people of color there. or if they And the people of color that were there were disposed of. So this is a eugenic cult. So he had the, the features and the blue eyes, the blondish brownish hair that would fit right into their genetics that they want to keep in this community. And uh, yeah, so I think he was chosen uh, for that reason um, because nobody else would have fit the bill except for, you know, um, Mark, but he, you know, skinned the fool. And I didn't I didn't know that, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I didn't either, but that does make sense. And I think I can't remember who it is that says it, but I'm sure there's somebody at the start. I think of course it's fucking Christian asks asks is like is incest an issue in the community? And somebody had said it had been before. Um and obviously that that led that had led to um, you know, not, not so great as it does you know sometimes genetic mutations and they bring people in on occasion so that the community can continue to to grow and to um have children and things like that so um I think that's yeah. probably 
Sorry, you go. They're basically doing um, some of their own version of genetics, um, you know, kind of uh, experiments because they said the only time that the incest is allowed is when they need a new like profit. Like Ruben was the, a product of incest, the deformed one who did all the sacred texts and they interpret what his paintings mean in the sacred text. So when they're like, what happens when Ruben dies? Well, there's another person of, you know, a creation specifically of incest to produce another one. So, uh, but otherwise they, yeah, they're very careful about the, the lines of reading. Like you have to have approval and like see if like um, our important woman who, who kind of runs the show, she's the one that has, you know, th that approves the matches. You may mate with this person. Sorry. No, oh, that's I'm <laughs> Obviously I'm obsessed with this movie. <laughs> No, I love I, we we love it. We love all the details. Um, so we get the we get the May dance scene as we get this sequence with Christian and Maja. Um, Danny becomes the May queen. You know she's the last one standing, and then we get this, this interesting sex scene. <laughs> like, I how do you both feel about it? Like at first I was kind of oh god, but it's it's when like she's cushioning him on his backside and everything and oh, oh. singing and there's just hits everywhere and I'm like oh god <laughs> naked ladies just you know like we're all gonna be here for this is that cool um no but there but the thing is is like if one person feels something the community feels it yeah so like kind of getting into ecstasy while conversely Danny is crying and wailing and the other women are wailing with her because they're feeling you know she is the family now because of the main queen thing but I want to point out that uh, Jack Rayner, who plays Christian, um, because it's basically a rape scene, he's basically raped um, or coerced into this situation. And it was his choice to, um, he said, so many women get raped. And then after, you know, in these kind of movies, and then they go out and they're naked. And, you know, like, think of I spend your grave type stuff. So he made the choice. I want to be left naked, running around like these women who get victimized. You know, and I thought that was a brilliant choice. Yeah, definitely. I was just about to mention that as well, actually. I think that's um, really powerful. As much as we've, like, absolutely shitted on Christian, and don't get me wrong, he is not a great human being. Nobody deserves to be in that situation. And he didn't definitely didn't have a choice in that situation. I would be in agreement that when it comes down to it, it is rape. You know, he's, he's drugged. Drugged out of his absolute fucking mind, but he can't really give any form of consent. Um, Lindsay, what, what do you think of, of this scene? And are you kind of in agreement with that? It's, that it's just, he didn't really have a choice. Yeah, he doesn't really have um, a choice in the matter. Um, but I'm oddly, like, I'm not sympathetic towards him in any way whatsoever. I don't know if that makes me heartless, but... Um, I'm not going to say like he deserves it but I'm just like I just I don't feel any sympathy for him like I kind of feel like he kept going on about like wanting to sleep with other people and stuff and it's just like well you're getting what you wanted so. yeah karma's a bitch huh exactly yeah this is true um and as you were mentioned there Candy the whole community feels everything and we get you see that with Danny you know when Danny sees Christian um you know um 
with Maja. Um, she's absolutely distraught and she starts crying. And then all the women huddle towards her and they're crying at the same time. And we get that famous, I think this that's one of the other like really famous shots from this film is all of them huddled together wailing. Um, I think that's part of, you know, the community as well. It's like fucked up as it is. Like they all feel and they're all there for each other. Pelly mentions that earlier as well. You know, he's an orphan and opens up to Danny about that. And we can only assume his parents were maybe involved in the same ritual that happens to Christian at the end. And but he, they, they have that community together and they're there for each other through thick and thin. Um, Which is exactly what Danny wants. Yeah. At the end of the day, she wants family. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we get those scenes. We get, um, I love this, like the costume design as well. We start off with like the flower crowns at the May Festival. And then we get a little bit of like the kind of the shoulders with the flowers. And then it progressively just gets fucking crazy <laughs> with the outfit. Um, what do we think of the costume design for this bit? Because we'll get to the ending in a second. But it kind of reminds me a little bit of Ready or Not, like this kind of costume that slowly evolves like the wedding dress getting more tattered it's the flower dress getting bigger and bigger and bigger um what do you both think of this I felt like it was symbolic um of you know you're here you're part of the family and she it's it's sort of like she's trying to kind of buck that and fight that but it's like oppressing and holding her down and then suddenly you know um while she's completely covered except for her face and then she smiles um, when we get to the ending part, you know, we see that smile. But um, I think it's her struggling because you see her struggling to walk with all those flowers. But I think that's her inner struggle with, do I give into this? Do Because I'm offered power here. I'm offered family. And I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm struggling, you know, but uh, but then it, it suddenly doesn't seem like a burden anymore. It just seems kind of beautiful on her. Lindsay, is it a look? Would you toot it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like, I love the flower dress. Like, I kind of jokingly say all the time that I want one. Like, I want something that looks like that. Um, but like, as well as it being like very aesthetically pleasing, it is all those things that Candy has said as well. Like, it's representative of that struggle of, you know, moving away from her old life and joining this new one with this new community and the like the internal battle as to whether that's the right course for her or not so yeah it's really interesting from like both of those sides of it so we'll go on that's to what i forgot to do before the show is put my flower crown on i have some oh that's such a look and i love it i'm here for it send us photos i want to see I wanna yes see. um so we'll get on to our final final scene absolutely iconic scene um so obviously Danny's been crowned the May Queen and we find out at the end so at the end of the Midsummer Festival there's nine human sacrifices that happen every 90 years um there's four outsiders that have been lured um by Pele and Ignamar and um, so we had we had Connie we had uh, Simon and um, we obviously had Mark we had Josh um and there's two people within the community that have um, volunteered themselves as well. And they do it with like a, it reminded me of bingo, like the little yeah. box when they pick someone. <laughs> um, 
But we, we have our final eight, and the May Queen gets to decide on the final victim. So she gets to choose between um, Christian and a local villager. And she chooses Christian, and he gets stuffed into this bear who we saw at the start. He's in this bear suit, and they go into the... Um, the yellow triangular temple which we've seen throughout the film but we're never allowed to see inside and then you know we see all the the victims all the characters that we saw before they're all like stuffed in different symbolic ways um i forgot to mention earlier about um oh who is it that simon's like in this like blood eagle position that you know in the The vikings used to do that oh did they yeah it was um it considered uh, an honorable way to die. What they do is they rip open the rib cage and they put the lungs over it. And if you can do that without screaming, you can still go to Valhalla. Oh, wow. I knew yeah. about the, I've always said, like, when I go put me on a boat and then shoot a, a firing arrow, like the Vikings. <laughs> we have some Nordic blood. Um, but yes, um, Annie chooses Christian and we get this final scene where it goes up in flames. The temple goes up in flames and we have this final shot of Danny looking like in despair. You know, before that, she's like kind of like crying on the ground. The whole group is crying as well because as you say, they feel so they're feeling the death of their, you know, people in their community and the outsiders. But then we get this smile and the film ends. Lindsay, what's what's this ending like for you? Like from the first time you watched it to now, do you feel any differently about it? I kind of like my feelings on the ending like haven't changed. Like every time I've watched it, I'm just I'm so happy for her. Um because she looks so happy. There's like a cathartic feeling of this like one last weight of her old life just being burned up in flames um and it's not that thing like you literally have to set your ex on fire to get over them I think it's like through the process of getting over someone you have those little things that like oh remind you of them and maybe make you miss them and then there's that one last thing as soon as it's gone it's like oh I'm free now I'm free from that part of my life I can just move on now and that's what we're seeing visually for her that's just one last thing just literally going up in flames and that's her free definitely and is there anything I know we've spoken about the ending quite a bit just now but is there anything else that you want to add about how the ending made you feel um what you thought about it um I just you know Florence Pugh is is such a gorgeous gorgeous a uh, woman and her mouth to me is just was so iconic and um that smile that smile um is is what we've been trying for this entire movie we want that for her and so it's it feels triumphant uh definitely a lot of symbolism here but i like when she, she's looking around at the other villagers and it's not just that they're crying they're laughing they're screaming they're kind of tearing out their hair they're they're it's almost like a hysteria you're looking around like what the fuck they were so organized and put together but this is like so important and so just like it's a big thing to the community and she is now part of that she's part of something and she's free from her old life because her old life wasn't working out for her now again I don't condone what 
you know, this pagan cult was doing, but she found a place. And she also, that smile was not just freedom, but it was power. She was the queen. She's powerful now. So not only is she free from all these other horrible things, but she has power. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, it's, it's weird to say that about a horror movie, but I am, I'm happy to see that smile. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. I agree with you both wholeheartedly. It's just, it's weird to say for a horror movie, you would say, but it's, it's beautiful. It's a really beautiful scene and it's very powerful. And you, there's just so much for anyone that relates to Danny, anyone that's been in a similar situation, it's so cathartic and just nothing else like it. Um, it felt like, I don't know, you just wanted to clap and cheer for her. It was just wonderful. Um, but on that note, I'm going to ask you both, if you had to pick one standout scene, start off with you, Lindsay, what is your one standout scene from Midsummer? <laughs> oh, there's too many. It's so hard to pick just one. Um, my my favourite scene is the dancing. Like, over the course of the film, we see, like, out of these, out of this group of Americans that have gone, bearing in mind they're all, there's, what, three anthropology students that go? She's the only one that really, like, gives herself into all the little, like, quirks of the community. Like, she picks flowers backwards and she goes and uh, helps make the pies. And then we get to the, the dancing scene and she's like she's dancing with all of the girls she's randomly speaking Swedish and she's smiling and it's the first time in the whole film you see her smile and I just think that's really nice like I love that for her that's a great one what about you Candy what's your standout scene there there are so many um I really I really would have to say that ending scene um just basically what I said you know we see the real community we see all you know everybody freaking out um you know because th th there's the fire and then you know we have that moment with Danny and it's just like it's beautiful it's it's weird it's frightening it's off-putting but it draws you in it's um I, I think it's just everything all at once and what I like are slow burn films that have these important meanings at the end all that build-up meant something and it led to this this scene where we actually see everybody for who they are and how they feel and the reality of it. And, and you see that, yeah, Danny's home. Yes, those are both great scenes. I'm like, oh, if, if I would probably choose the end scene as my standout scene, but just to choose something that is um, different from the both of you, another, another standout scene for me besides those two is the start. With, like, as I, we spoke about with Danny, when she finds out about her parents and her sister, and that, that scene of the wailing and the crying, even though it's incredibly hard to watch, it's so important to the film. It, it's really the reality of trauma and grief, and it's probably one of the most accurate representations I've seen of it, and it's just so raw. And then just after that, we get the, you know, the slow pan into the, into the snow with that you can barely make it out text that says Midsummer, and it just, like, what? A fucking powerful introduction to what is going to be an emotional roller coaster of a movie. Um, 
So on that note, unless either of you have anything else you want to add, we shall get into our ratings. So Lindsay, I'm going to ask you first, what are you going to rate Midsummer out of 10? I'm going to give Midsummer a 9 out of 10. I find it hard to find any like real flaws with this film. Like, yeah, it's quite long, but I th think every minute of it is needed to tell this full story. Um, it's just another fantastic turn by Ari Aster. Um, the acting's fantastic in it. The cinematography is great. And I just think this is going to be one of those films that we're going to be talking about for years and years and years and years because it's just, I just think it's that good. Definitely. And Candy, what are you going to rate Midsummer out of 10? Uh, I have to give it a 10 out of 10. Um, I, I just am obsessed with the movie. Obviously, I have a, lot, a head full of trivia about it, but um, because I like stuff that makes me think. Um, I like uh, these kind of slower paced movies that are coming back into style in horror where, you know, the narrative is very important. We have a great story. We have uh, interesting characters, character arcs, uh, character flaws. Um, and this is really at the heart of it. It is a breakup film. And, you know, it's not just through death, although we do have literal death and grief from that, but there's grieving of a relationship. And if you're grieving during the relationship, about the relationship, the relationship's over. Um, and it's clearly, she's still grieving that relationship while they're still together there at the beginning, you know? Um, yeah, because she knows that she's just clinging by a thread there. But uh, yeah, this it's just beautiful, beautiful scenes and, and shots, even when they're horrible topics, you know, I can't, I, I have to say this is, yeah, it's definitely always going to be relevant because there's nothing like it. And I don't think you can even try and imitate this. Um, it's so uh, masterfully done. Um, so yeah, um, because of its uniqueness and a uh, powerful message, I have to give it a perfect score. Very glad to hear both very high ratings from the two of you. Um, it's gonna sound like I give a lot of, ten well, this will be my second 10 out of 10 in the five episodes that we've done but I have to give a 10 out of 10 to Jennifer's body and I have to give a 10 out of 10 for this um even out with of my kind of personal connection to this because like in all honesty the characters I tend to relate to are usually queer women but like I really relate to Danny um probably one one of the people that I relate to the most in horror out with like Ripley from Alien which I've mentioned before as well um even out with that, I think this is just such a staple of cinema history now. I think Ari Aster has done something completely unique for the genre. And as you mentioned, it's, it's the epitome of a breakup movie. Like when I think breakup movies, even just without horror, I think of Midsummer. Um, there really isn't anything I can, I can fault from it. Um, so yeah, I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. Um, We'll quickly go over the ratings. So IMBD gave this a 7.1 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes Critics gave it an 83. However, the audience gave it 63, which I'm pretty Um, So it's kind of just above average, but like when I see that, I'm kind of like, oh, how could they? But 
I do understand that this film isn't for everybody. Not everybody's going to want to watch a two and a half hour film that's very subliminal messages and you have to think about it and you need to probably watch it a few times. Lindsay, would you be in agreement with that? Yeah, absolutely. Like I I feel like sometimes because we we had a similar thing with Jennifer's body, and it's like, can more people just review that now so that the score can go up? And similarly <laughs> with this, like if someone just watched this once and was just like, eh, it was all right. Like I get that because I was I was kind of like that when I came out of it. It needs a few watches, which isn't something that a lot of people want to hear about a film. Like, oh yeah, you need to watch it three times before you like it. Like that's not exactly encouraging. But I, I don't think Ari Aster films are just are for the every person, like the every man. Like he makes films for film fans, um, and that's fine. Like not everything is for everyone, but. Yeah, the the Ari Stan in me is just like that should be eighty at least. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but we shall go on to our next film, which another emotional roller coaster tonight, guys. As we said, if you've not finished your Ben and Jerry's already, you should definitely <laughs> be on the line at least by now. You should have your tissues out because we are going to be speaking about the Invisible Man next. Adrian, he was a sociopath. He said that I could never leave him. He controlled how I looked and what I wore. Then I was controlling when I left the house and eventually what I thought. to be invisible. So, the IMBD plot for Invisible Man is as follows. When Cecilia's abusive ex takes his own life and leaves her his fortune, she suspects his death was a hoax. As a series of coincidences coincidences turn lethal, Cecilia works to prove that she's being hunted by somebody nobody can see. This movie was released in 2020. Um, the cast is uh, includes Elizabeth Moss, Aldous Hodge and Storm Reid. This was directed by Lee Wanal, uh, written by Lee Wanal as well, and it's inspire inspired, as we mentioned earlier, by the H.G. Wells novel. Um, this movie had a $7 million budget, so $2 million under Midsummer. And um, this was a box office smash. It um, grossed 143 million at the box office. And um, 
a movie I really wish I got to see in theaters. <laughs> Sadly, we didn't get to because uh, because of COVID and the likes. Um, but overall, what do, what do we think of this movie, Lindsay? What do you think of the Invisible Man? Did you get to see this at the cinema? I think you might have. Did you? Or no. No. Um... Yeah, because I'm pretty sure this came out in January 2020. Um, so when I was looking up the box office figures and stuff for this, I was curious to see how much that would have impacted it because I think COVID was on our radar in January. Um, so some people might have been put off going to the cinema at that point, maybe not. But um, I think it done an amazing job, like making making money um in spite of that because it's like what is it 143 and a half million or something like it's incredible numbers um it is it was the first film I watched in lockdown it's weird that I remember that but um yeah I'm sure I got it on like video on demand and watched it um and yeah I absolutely loved it from like the first moment I watched it great film to be your first film to watch in in lockdown Candy, did, did you watch this um, like relatively soon after it came out? Because as we mentioned, this is a pretty, it's only been out for like a year and a bit. It's a relatively new movie. And like, did you, did you enjoy it? Um, I did. Um, I'm a big uh, classic film buff. Uh, I, I talk about that sometimes. Um, I love the original. I had Claude Rains in it and that, you know, um, he's, it's, it's considered you know, one of the universal monsters. Um, but nobody really talks about the Invisible Man. They always think of Dracula, you know, Frankenstein's monster, so on, you know, the Gilman, um, creature from Blackton, whatever. But uh, yeah, the Invisible Man. So I always thought it was an interesting story anyway and how, you know, easily that got twisted. But they they took that and they made it modern. They made it work. And so, uh, you know, I saw this uh, at home. We, we just rented it on, because, you know, COVID, all that. And everybody was just raving about it. So I had to see it, of course. And, and you know, Elizabeth Moss was, it has been uh, in Handmaid's Tale, which is one of my favorite fucking shows. Because, um, you know, being the feminist that I am, I, I that's the kind of stuff that draws me. And she plays these amazing uh, characters. So I'm like, what is she going to do with this film? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we rented it, um, you know, because they started making stuff available on demand because of COVID. And we saw it and it just blew me away um the this was this was another one where I saw myself in in the character um you know in her character you know trying to sneak away from this very dangerous person and this very dangerous person also happens to be brilliant and the way that they uh work the invisible thing I thought was so fucking creative so yeah like I was blown away from the beginning like I already know where this is going and I'm I'm liking this Definitely. I think, yeah, it's really important to note that we had the we had the novel and then we had the 1930s um, original film of The Invisible Man. And as you say, it's one of the universal monster movies, but it's not the first one people think of. And that film, probably partly because of its time as well, it's a great film, but it's more kind of campy and comedic. Um, how, Lindsay, had you seen the, the original or um, like seen any kind of imagery or clips of it? Um, and kind of if you had how, how do you feel like they took that in like in a more serious and modern light like because it's a it's totally different but I'm in agreement with you Candy that they did it great yeah like I've not seen the film but I've seen 
the pictures of the Invisible Man. It's always like in bandages and glasses. And it's like you say, it's very, it's very campy looking. And this is like completely different. The only other kind of Invisible Man-esque thing that I've seen is Hollow Man. Um, I haven't seen that in years and years and years, but I'm like quite familiar with that. And it's a lot more like sinister. And obviously this film plays a bit more into that. Um, but yeah, the, from the Invisible Man film in 1933 to this Invisible Man 2020, you could not get like two more different looking films, I think. Definitely. I've not seen Hollow Man, but I need I need to I need to watch that. Um we'll start off the toilet for you, but uh, yeah, uh, it, it's a movie that you should see, but uh this film's better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't go into it thinking it's gonna be as good as this. Is that what you're saying, guys? Yeah. Correct. <laughs> um so we'll start off kind of similar to Midsummer, the first scene in The Invisible Man is so strong we start off right away into tension and we get the I think the starting credits and this is great with like the waves and stuff like that and we're introduced to Cecilia and she's trapped in this incredibly controlling and abusive relationship with um this businessman this multi-millionaire and um, you know he made his wealth through optics Adrian and we get this first scene where she drugs Adrian in the night with diazepam and she's escaping their highly secured house with the assistance of her sister, Emily. And she's like slowly creeping through the house and trying not to like alert the dog or like all the alarms and stuff. And like from the get go, even though we don't know at this point really anything about Adrian, it's still really tense. Like, what do we think of this, like this first scene as she's escaping? Um, For me, it's, um, I literally had to do that um, in, in my past. Um, you know, I grew up in, in domestic abuse and, and that carried on in my life till I was, got sick of it at, at 30, but um, like, I'm not going to do this anymore, but I literally did have to sneak out and get away from something. So I felt that like really strongly. So right in the, the very beginning, I got punched in the stomach, like, oh my God, like almost trigger a PTSD with me. Like, I've been here. I know. I know. And um, I, I want to point out um, Adrian, being the fucker that he is, played by Oliver Jackson Cohen. Um, I really enjoyed the Haunting of Hill House series on Netflix, and he was in that. And so I was glad to see him in this film. He did a great job at being a fucking piece of shit. And Elizabeth Moss, like, I, I just fucking love her. Like just right from the beginning, like she's firing on all cylinders, but I know that situation. I've been there and it was such a strong note to start on. So we already have like a message in this film and I can go into that more with some other scenes, uh, what this film is really about. Yeah, definitely. As you say, straight off the bat where, you know, we see that Seal is in this, constant mode of fight or flight and at this moment she's trying to flight she's trying to flee and you know it's her it feels like it's her only chance Lindsay what do you think of these first scenes and this is just like an absolutely fantastic like first 10 minutes of a film I think like you could maybe put it in like a top 10 somewhere like it's very non-verbal um but 
a story is very clearly communicated to us, which just goes to show that Elizabeth Moss is an amazing actress. That um, like Lee Winnell, this is only his second like directorial film, and the direction in this scene is incredible as well. Um, all the little bitties that are like building up tension where she accidentally knocks a dog ball and then the car alarm goes off and and then when he comes running towards the car as well you can just like see it in the background and it's all very anxiety inducing and you are right there with Cecilia like going through this escape from this horrible partner with her and I just think it's an absolutely fantastic opening for this film and just films in general. It's so well done. Exactly. And even at this point, like we haven't really, we haven't heard Adrian speak, but seeing him chase that car, it shows that he's got nothing to lose. And even from that moment, you you feel the terror that Cecilia feels, you know, like, like, oh shit, this, this is this is a dangerous man. And you can feel that the just the sheer terror. Um but yes, luckily she does manage to escape. This is our first kind of scenes with her. Um, she hides out in her um, sister's friend's house. Um, he's a detective. It's James and their teenage daughter, Sydney. Can we just say, love Sydney and James so much in this film. I think yeah. the relationship between Cecilia and James is lovely. Um, I just love that family dynamic. <laughs> I want to be friends with them. Um, right. Right. Um, We'll go into the, those characters a little bit later, though, as we kind of go through the film. Um, but she's been staying there, and um, two weeks after Cecilia's escape, Adrian has committed suicide. That's what we're told, anyway. He's assumed to be dead, and has left her $5 million, a significant amount of money. Um, and we're introduced to his brother, Tom, who's who's a lawyer. So he's handling the arrangements for, for this money. It's going to be sent in lump sums. So essentially, um, Cecilia is kind of what other people would assume is set up for life, but she's seeing that again as another method of control. Like she's thinking, even in death, he's controlling her life and has something over her. At least that's what I got from that. Is that what you both got from that? And did you at the beginning, did you think he was dead? Or were you kind of like, no, this is there's something here. <laughs> I, I did not think he was dead because we needed to have the movie. You know, you understand what I mean? Like, sometimes people are like, why did this happen? Well, because the movie needed to happen. So we needed an invisible man. And, and it's, you know, we have the, the hints and, and being told this guy is like a genius level with tech and um working on some stuff. And so, you know, you, you start to be like, okay, so what? I mean, the, the red herring with the, the, he's killed himself. But if this is somebody that, you know, would literally run after you like that, he's not going to let go. There's something. And she, she's skeptical because she knows this guy and she escaped from this guy. So she's skeptical. But, uh, and he finds the worst ways ever in history to gaslight somebody um and and literally make her think you know, people think she's crazy that she's dangerous and it's him just manipulating more manipulation so yeah i i did not believe he was dead i knew more was coming 
Lindsay, are you in agreement? And how did what did you feel about like all this this like massive lump sum of money being left for her as well? Did you think, you know, from the outside people think that's so lovely and great intentions, but did you think no, this is just like another means of control, or did you have other thoughts? Yeah, no, I like I totally see that point of view. Like, like I kind of think in my own situations, like I've not spoken to my dad for like 20 years or something and then if all of a sudden if he died and I've got all this money like I don't know what I'd do with it because then it's like I have no relationship with you but I do kind of need money but that's not a good reason to take money from somebody that you have no relationship with so I do kind of see that um it's just it would just be this constant reminder of that person and especially with such a large sum of money like you can do some incredible things you can have an amazing life with all that money but then in the back of your head you'd just be thinking like this is from my abusive boyfriend and it like how how satisfying would it really be to have a nice house and go on all the nice holidays and have the nice designer clothes if you're spending it with this like tainted money basically that's what I was gonna say it would feel so dirty Mm. Um, like what I just wanted to get the fuck away from you like I want nothing from you and I'm saying that as a person who walked away from two relationships and did pregnancies by myself I didn't take any child support I didn't want them around my children Mm. so you know in my being with abusive people uh situations so yeah, I I'm, I am that person. I would be like, fuck no, <laughs> no. I want nothing from you. I want my fucking. I would be the same as well. Like as nice as it would be to have money like that, especially. I mean, that's a life changing amount of money, but it's blood money at the end of the day. And especially if you've been through so much toxicity with somebody. For me, anyway, and kind of as you both mentioned, it just feel like dirty, and it's just a constant reminder of them. But at the same time, I can understand why Cecilia would take it. And she does do good with that money because, you know, she's giving a big chunk of that money to Sydney to help her through school and to change Sydney and James's life, which is, you know, which is amazing. Um, but after this, we slowly start to get scenes um, where it's not outrightly said there is somebody watching Cecilia, but and I really want to get your guys' thoughts on this. Some of the ways that these um, scenes are shot it's like these wide pan shots and like there's empty chairs and like we slowly start seeing like little crevices on the bed and there's the scene where Cecilia's cooking eggs and um I think the eggs like I think it gets burnt or something and you know she goes to a job interview as well and she doesn't have her portfolio book there it's a really slow build to where we eventually get the scenes where we're like oh there is somebody there and um, what did you two think of this and like on like a second or third watch did you like notice those little things more um from like the first time you saw it um yeah um I think I like that it's it's subtle at first we we need that build up um but yeah you you do notice things and um you know those little subtle things that and then they become things that you know are very very obvious but um yeah I I I like the the pacing. I like uh, that it's just these subtle things at first. And uh, when, um, well, I'm, I'm going to, I tend to jump ahead, so I better just stop okay, there. Okay, that's fine. We, we, we go on with the tangents here. We jump, yeah. so don't worry. 
Yeah, I'm I'm a uh, repeat offender on my show, like every show I do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean this this son of a bitch. I'm just, you know, um, he's clever in the way where it makes it look like she is at fault or she's faulty. She's done something wrong. She's misplaced things. She's you know it's trying to destroy this dynamic relationship that she ha- has with uh you know James and his daughter. You know what I mean, like. It's, you know, just subtle things that, you know, it's subtle enough that other people will absolutely believe that she's capable of killing somebody and hurting people. Um, You know, um, it's the ultimate revenge, you know, you know, a scorched the earth type guy, stalker, creepy, and taking everything away from her, including relationships. But it has to happen slow for them to believe that she's crazy, that she's capable of doing these things. Yeah, definitely. We can see slowly but surely Adrian is taking away everybody in Cecilia's life from James and Sydney to um, you know her sister um, with, with the job interview and things like that. Lindsay, what do you think of these like first few scenes before we get to that you know scene with Sydney where you're like oh shit somebody is there did any of those like really kind of stand out to you that were like your favorites or anything like that yeah like I remember the first time watching this film like it's kind of another film on the first watch like you have to be quite carefully watching it like with the the frying pan and if you're not paying close attention, you don't notice that somebody has turned up like the heat and that's why it goes on fire. And it's these little things where it's like, is she is she crazy or is she telling the truth? And in the process of that, he kind of does like drive her crazy. She's, by the time we get to the restaurant scene, like she's like manic, trying to like find somebody who'll believe her that all these things are happening and nobody does. And he's given her a buildup where she's doubting herself and ab- absolutely everyone else is doubting her and, and is fearful of her and by her behavior, but that's part of the plan. Yeah, that's what he wants. He wants her to be isolated and wants her to be doubting and discredited her completely. Yeah. So that he can just swoop in and be like, oh, it's okay, I'll look after you and then just go back to abusing her again. Well, it is I'm still abusing her now, but... Which know. is what a lot of abusers do as well. Yeah. They take out the people in your life so you feel like you've got nobody else that you can rely on but them. Um, so we have those subtle scenes and then we have this this really, it it kind of took me away. Besides the the restaurant scene, which we'll get to, you know, Sydney is hit by an unseen force. She gets whacked, and then James. I mean, nobody assumes there's a visible man. So James obviously thinks it's Celia as she's becoming more and more unhinged. Um, so obviously that completely damages their relationship. Um. And, you know, Cecilia is desperately trying to convince them there is, there, you know, there is an invisible man. You know, she's spoke, spoken to Tom, thinking, saying that, you know, Adrian isn't dead. And, um, you know, from the outset, these people don't, don't believe her. It sounds ridiculous. Um, we get this first scene where we actually see some sort of a figure. Um, she finds Adrian's phone in the attic and she receives a text that says, surprise, just being the creepy fuck that he is. Um, and she takes like this um, thing of paint and throws it, and then we. This is the first time we see a figure. Like, what did what did we think of this? Because it's really creepy. 
I found it really creepy. Like we know somebody's there, but then to actually see it, you're just like, I don't know, took me by surprise. <laughs> or did Lindsay, what did you think of that? It's it's also like vindication though. You're just like, yes, like we as the audience also finally have proof that he is there, he is following her. You see all the things that he stole from her upstairs, like her portfolio, you find the phone and like I was just like yes like so ready to get behind Cecilia I remember the scene where she like pours the paint on and he's right there and um, like one of the last times I was watching I was just like stab him in the head just get him now and then um, but I think it's just the shock of the situation she's just kind of like oh what do I do like I would probably be the same like just freezing like oh what do I do but um, yeah it's just like vindication that she's been right this whole time Candy, did you feel that as well? You're like, yes, you were right, girl. Exactly. I did feel that because, you know, he was, you know, ruining everything in her life. And she believed that somehow he was there. But to actually get that, you know, that vindication, that proof, it you do get jarred. Like, what? I mean, I believed it, but what the, uh, it's real? Like, I mean, while you're believing it, you're still a little bit doubting yourself. Like, this is so far-fetched, but I know it's not me. I know there's something going on, but that, to have that proof be right there. And you're just like, uh, I wasn't prepared for this. I don't know what I expected, but I know now, and I'm scared all over again. And it's kind of like, you know, it's it's, it's a frightening moment. It's, it's like shocking, even though you know. Yeah, exactly. As you say, we, we know that Cecilia is right, but then to have that proof, proof of the pain, and you're like, yes, it's, it's very satisfying. Um, she goes to Adrian's house and then finds the invisible bodysuit. This is the first time we see the bodysuit and actually see like how Adrian's become invisible because obviously he works in optics and he's created this optical suit, gives the optical illusion. It's a really cool modern take on the invisible man. What do you two think of this? Because um, like op- optic technology is you know, evolving every day, technology is evolving every day. And it's not something that's completely out of reality. When you think about it, what do you both think of this? Um, I was impressed um, with how they came up with that to modernize it, um, because it's really hard to find a way to make this story still work. you know, and to do something fresh and to, with the Invisible Man, it's not like, you know, the bandages and the glasses. So, you know, that we had to come up with a way and they, they did it brilliantly. Um, and it's, it's scary. It's frightening. Um, I wouldn't say like, it's one of those like teeth chatterer, like kept me up all night with nightmares, like hereditary, I'm calling you out right there, but um, it's hard to scare me. Um, I've been a horror fan for so long, but it gave me a different kind of terror. And uh, I just think that that updating with the suit, it in that moment that she discovers, oh shit, how do I fight something that I can't fucking see? And you know, and then there are more questions that arise, like, well, what now? Yeah, exactly. Um, the unseen can be just as terrifying as what we see in front of us. Lindsay, what do you think about the suit and like? the whole design behind it and you know we get scenes later on as well with the suit being punctured and like ways to um I mean it's 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 a durable suit 
um but like there, there's some cool scenes with it later on and stuff like that what did you think of this as like a reveal of how adrian becomes invisible um i like that it's a suit um it's a lot more like based in realism like i can imagine that there's like the military and all other types of bodies are looking at some kind of invisibility or like cloaking type thing um for warfare or for whatever so I feel like the suit's a lot more believable than if we'd went down the more 1933 route I feel like it's like is it a potion that they take yes like I think if Adrian had taken a potion like it would have completely taken you out of it so I think this was definitely the better way to go and I think with you know, we have people in real life like Elon Musk and Jeffrey Bezos who are funding God knows what with their ridiculous amount of money. It's not completely out of the blue that there would be like an independent civilian person who is making their own um, invisibility suit and with Adrian's um, expertise in optics. Because um, I think with this, it's, it's actually meant to be more like it reflects its environment and that's how they become invisible um, rather than like disappearing a body and, um, and going down. More like a route. chameleon type thing. Yeah, definitely yeah. going down the more like chameleon route. So yeah, I absolutely love that they went down this route with the invisibility suit. It's a really cool modern take, and as we said, it's not something that's necessarily far-fetched, and you can see the multi-billionaires of the world, the, the white cis middle-aged men coming up with these suits, uh, or the military. Um, now, after this scene, we get the scene of this. There is a lot of scenes, but this is the scene, the restaurant scene, where Cecilia is at the restaurant with her sister, um, you know, um Adrian has sent like a really horrible email to Emily which he thinks uh, which Emily thinks is from Cecilia but we know it's Adrian conspiring trying to get everyone away from Cecilia and it comes out of nowhere and um, they're at the restaurant it's in a public setting and her throat is slit in the middle of the restaurant and it is so quick and it's such a sudden death would you both think of think of this scene um because I think everybody just doesn't expect it right I, I didn't expect it I was like holy shit oh my god and you know it's just another way um for him to set her up and have less credibility um that's what these abusers do is they you know, they make you sever ties or people sever ties with you to sabotage relationships so that the only place that you have left to go is to that person, you know? And so it's just another way that he's controlling and getting his grips on her. And it's just so sudden. I was just like, holy shit. Oh my God, I can't believe what? And of course, nobody in the restaurant's like watching them, like seeing exactly what happened that it just, you know, of course they think she did it. You know, and I was just like, oh, you fucker. Oh my God. And like, if I was, I, I don't have any sisters, but if it, I was there with my brother in public, like saying, look, I didn't do this and let's talk. And, and all of a sudden his throat slit and I'd be like, my fucking brother, what? Oh my God. I love my brother. But also they think I fucking did it. Why would I do that? That's completely across purpose from why I'm actually here, you know? 
um yeah it's it's jarring it's where the film really takes it up a notch because at this point it's been a bit of a slower burn I think this is really where things kind of get into full gear Lindsay what do you think of this scene were you just as shook as to your core absolutely like I'm pretty sure I had to like rewind it because it's one of those things on the first watch you're just like wait a minute what and because all of a sudden they're sitting there and then all of a sudden she has a knife in her hand and her sister's throat's been slit and you're just like what the heck has just happened and you rewind it and then you see the knife there and you're like you're not paying attention it's a really like blink and you'll miss it moment um, which is exactly how it needs to happen for Cecilia to be so confused for everybody around her to blame her for this um, murder of her sister um, I think Elizabeth Moss is amazing in this scene because like Candy said it's like she's there to try and repair this relationship with her sister she is probably so stressed out with this invisible man stalking her and then her sister is murdered right in front of her. Like, there's so many emotions, so many, like, traumatic things going on at the same time. And, like, you just feel that from Cecilia and Elizabeth Moss's acting is just amazing here. Because um, you, don't, you don't question that for a second. Yeah, exactly. I think this goes to show how a death can be done without, you don't always have to have all the wells, uh, well, whistles and bells, and it doesn't have to be loads of effects and stuff like that for a kill to be really effective. I mean, this for me is one of my like favorite kills of recent horror movies. It is so simple. It's a knife, it's a slip through. We see that all the time, but it's in the context of it and you just don't see it coming. And it really shows like how far Adrian is going to go to control Cecilia, like he's, beyond any point like he will do anything to to control her um and everything just that's her it's almost like a punishment too yeah that's what abusers do they punish you until you know you're ready to just say like speaking back to midsummer i'm sorry even though it's not your fault they're waiting for that i'm sorry and they're gonna make you sorry until you say you're sorry Yes, exactly. And um, after this scene, things don't get any calmer. <laughs> We're like fully into this film now. Um, so obviously, because nobody can see Adrian, they all assume that Cecilia did it. Um, so in the first instance, she's taken into a psychiatric hospital, a psychiatric hospital. And we have another twist that actually she is pregnant. Um, and then you think that's 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 a really big twist. And then two seconds later, Tom comes in, which is Adrian's brother, and says, you know, if you keep if you keep the pregnancy, um, you know, he he won't hurt you anymore, which goes to prove that Tom is involved in the situation and knows that Adrian didn't kill himself and is behind this. And so it's it's like three twists in the space of like 15 minutes. I just like. Yeah, it's like you can break, you break your neck trying to keep up with them. It's like, oh my God, so you understand like where she's just like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, complete head turn. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, what, what do you do all this? All these like twists, because it's just like one after the other and you're like, what the fuck? Right. Breakneck speed. Lindsay, what do you think of these? Um, the reveal of the pregnancy and then, you know, Tom's involved and all this stuff. It, it's... 
like yet another triple whammy for poor Cecilia like just when she thinks she can kind of get a grip on the situation the rug's pulled out from under her yet again um, because we're not entirely sure how many months have passed per se but you could jump to numerous like horrible conclusions from this like has he been raping her while she's been asleep has he inseminated her while she's been asleep with you know the turkey baster method as they <laughs> as they like to refer to it um it's kind of mentioned later on that he'd swapped out her birth control but you don't actually know if this has happened before or after he's had his fake suicide um yeah and then the reveal that tom's in on it the whole time as well so this charade at the the lawyer's office earlier on when she's clearly visibly upset and it's like what is he gaining out of this like what does he get from seeing cecilia also tortured yeah exactly and i think at this point as well um you can i mean as we said elizabeth moss's acting is fantastic in this and you can see she's so defeated, but at this point, you know, when she takes the fountain pen as well, when she uses it later, you know that this bitch means business and she's got nothing to lose and she's going into that final girl mode, um, which I absolutely love. Um, so she leaves, um, she le- she's, she's still in the psychiatric hospital, she steals this fountain pen from, from Tom and she knows that because she has this, because um, she's pregnant, she kind of has leverage over Adrian in a sense so she attempts suicide knowing that that will lure, lure him out because at this point you know she's saying to the the staff at the hospital he's right there he, he's there we know as an audience he's there but obviously they don't believe her and it's just so frustrating as somebody in the audience being like he's fucking there just listen to her but at the same time what, what would you do in that situation you know somebody's telling you somebody's there um yeah and we have this scene where she um, attempts to take her own life and then she uses that fountain pen to stab the suit and the suit starts to to malfunction what did we think of this because I'm like applauding for Cecilia I'm like yeah she's she's out for revenge now and I'm here for it I am too um uh, you know I just like I said Elizabeth Moss she's just a great actress but I love The Handmaid's Tale and I felt like there's a little bit of her character from the handmaid's tale right there you know you know thinking ahead getting empowered kind of that what they call the gear up um you know I I love when she's like okay you fucked around with the wrong bitch I I'm done being a victim I'm not the one to do this um fuck around and find out I would agree with that Lindsay I know you're quite a fan of handmaid's tale as well Can can you see that kind of similar character definitely like I feel like the the grabbing and the hiding of the fountain pen is something it's something that June Osborne wouldn't do because she definitely thinks ahead like June is so smart and yeah I got some June Osborne vibes from that as well um I and then her also her plan to like slit her wrist to then lure him out is also something that June would do and we've seen her doing the handmaid's tale um to try and get what oh, say get what she wants like she's some femme fatale but to try and score some leverage in uh, Gilead and uh, I love that scene where 
yeah, she grabs him and she's just like, God, yeah, and she just stabs the fuck out of her. It's it's that same like catharsis that you get from watching the temple burn in midsummer. Just like, yes, like she's finally got a bit of leverage over him and she can do something to hurt him. Like it's it's physically, uh, and I'd love it to be more emotionally or mentally at this stage because he's that's his MO. But um yeah, it's just a very like you go girl moment. That's some girl boss shit right there. Yes. <laughs> um yeah, we have that scene. Um Celia manages to get out of the hospital. Um she races to James's house. Um, you know, we find the figure. Um, attacking James and Sydney again, like, well, we assume it's Adrian right now. We're going to get another reveal in a second, but we feel like the Invisible Man has taken everyone away from Cecilia. Um, she uh, shoots the figure to death, and we assume, yes, okay, Adrian is dead, but no, it's not. She unmasks the suit, and it's Tom. What did we think of this? Because this is the fourth bloody twist in this film. I'm like, I can't keep up. It was great, but. What, what did we think of this? Because then we're kind of wondering, you know, did Tom can kill Emily? What times were Tom? What times were Adrian? What did you guys think of this reveal? I, I thought it was a great twist to add in there. Um, another, you know, a uh, bit of mystery, another bit of like, okay, this shit's not done. And I'm going to, you know, I got to find out the rest. You know, I have to, you know, getting into like Cecilia's sort of mind, like, oh shit, really? Um, and then, you know, us as the viewers and Cecilia is kind of like, well, that's like, a, you know, we haven't met the final boss yet. We haven't finished this business. And I, so that was kind of like, wow, what the fuck? Oh my God. So what's, what's going to happen next? I mean, at this point, like you said, there's so many twists, like you're almost like, I don't, I don't even know anymore. I don't even know you know, what was going to happen. And so you're with her like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to figure this out because I have to, this is my life. I'm sick of this shit. Let's do this. Yeah. And we can kind of see here as well that, you know, Adrian's using Tom as a ploy and he really doesn't give a shit about anyone but himself. You know, he'll use his own brother as well. He sees everyone as like playthings. you know? Um, I feel like it's a money thing. Yeah. It's just, it's men. <laughs> Well, that too. Um, <laughs> duplicity of men. Lindsay, what do you think of this reveal of, you know, we know Tom's involved, but we didn't know he, he was in the suit. Like, what did you think of this? I think it, like, it just goes to show the audience, like, how deep Adrian's, like, powers of manipulation run. Because you think about this situation, like, it's not logical for Tom to get involved, but Adrian has these like whether it's through like the powers of persuasion or just through like dominance that he's managed to convince his brother to get involved in this it shows you how much like being this like alpha is um integral to his life and um how it goes further than just Cecilia's being abused in that relationship like this runs a lot deeper than just their relationship like he's clearly a very toxic person yeah so that's what I was just going to add on um you know that if he'll do this stuff to Cecilia what won't he do he probably has some hold 
on his brother and is either threatening him, you know, some kind of hold where he can control him. This is a control freak as most abusers are. And just, yeah, like you said, toxic. So he probably um, through intimidation or bribery or both um, got him involved and got him killed. Yeah, couldn't agree with you both more. Um, and we also find that um, the police storm Adrian's house and find him alive. So now everybody knows that he is alive and he faked his death. And we come to the um, kind of final scene. And I remember vividly when we were talking about this, Lindsay, we have the scene where um, Cecilia goes to Adrian's house and they have the dinner. You know what I'm going to say? She's in that little black dress. And you said, oh, man's going to die tonight. <laughs> It's true though, she's like the way she's dressed, the way she's walks walks up, it's like a man will die this night. You just knew it. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And like what what an outfit to do it in. Um so yeah, to do it in style. I mean, like a bad bitch, you know what I'm saying? Like exactly. Turns out. <laughs> Make sure you know, for me, like I get empowered when I'm wearing an awesome outfit hair makeup I mean that for me I don't do it for other people I do it for me it makes me feel powerful so yeah I get yeah. to that shit celebrate I hate I hate that when people are like when you you know do your makeup or your hair or whatever and like oh you did it for other people like no bitch I'm doing it for myself like half the time especially in COVID I'll take two hours to get ready to sit in my living room <laughs> so my face is my face is a canvas like that you've seen my makeup looks on Instagram um I mean I, I work with some makeup and skincare companies but it's just like I do what the fuck I want and I feel powerful doing it. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm fucking married with three kids. Like, dude, I'm, no, I don't need your attention. Um, you know, it's just for fun. Exactly. Um, so yeah, we get this end scene. So um, James is part of this as well. So um, Cecilia is wearing a wire. And James is in the background listening from a few blocks away. And she goes over there saying that, you know, she's looking to mend their relationship only if he confesses to killing Emily. Um, Adrian insists that, like, Tom was responsible. He's, like, not taking any accountability. Um, claims the experience changes outlook on life and how he treated her. Um, Adrian also says the word surprise here as a kind of way to say, like, I did do it, but I'm not going to say it because I'm not stupid because I know you're wearing a wire. What did you think of this? Because I was like, this bastard, like just sly fucking look on his face. I wanted to slap him silly. <laughs> I wanted to kick him right in the balls. Like you son of a bitch. You know, like, um, but you know, this is where, you know, Cecilia, she's been through so much and she, like you said, final girl mode. Um, She's like, nah, surprise is on you, motherfucker. Because we do have a scene, and I want to point this out here, where, you know, she sees there's another, there's a suit there in the house. Yeah. And that's important. And I always say um, on my show, they never show us anything um, on accident. There's always a reason why that scene happened, like, you know, that 10 second scene, because it's going to come into play. And you may have forgotten about it, but then you'll remember when you when it comes back up. So we know that there's a suit in the house. This is very true. And that will come into play in a second. Lindsay, what did you think of this when he had the audacity to say surprise? 
I know, like it's it's very frustrating. Um, it just kind of he's obviously like very intelligent, very manipulative. Um, but he underestimates Cecilia's intelligence as well. So when she excuses herself to go to the bathroom, I think it is, and he he thinks he's got the upper hand, and <laughs> he's so mistaken. Like he does not realize how over it Cecilia is because unfortunately some women never get out of their um, domestic abuse relationships whether it's because they just stay in them for a long time or because they unfortunately end up getting killed. That's what I was going to say the statistics on that because the cops don't intervene like I told I said earlier you know domestic disturbances they're just like um we'll make them leave for 24 hours i'm like i was at you know when when they would do that with my ex i would go to every window i had a butcher knife i couldn't sleep i'm like when he comes back 24 hours and he kills me are you gonna care yeah but we're in this situation it's very fortunate that cecilia has seen the light per se and it's like, I'm I'm not living my life like this anymore. And I don't think he's fully understood that she's hit her breaking point and there's no going back, uh, which just makes for one of the most satisfying film endings ever. And the end, his, his ego, his fucking ego. His creation <laughs> has killed him. Like, because whether she likes it or not, I guess, like the person she is, he's... It's the experiences with him that's made her the way she is now. But then it's also his like literal creation of the the suit, and it's like him getting a taste of his own medicine finally, with what she does to him in the end. And it's just chef's kiss. Oh, the chef's kiss. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, definitely. Cecilia goes to excuse herself to the bathroom. As you mentioned, Candy, we know that there's another suit, um, and there is CCTV and stuff as well. And she goes away. And then it's important to note that um, Adrian's having steak with a steak knife and gets his throat slit, gets his fucking coffins. And it's important to note as well that um, James notices at the end the, the bag with the suit, but he lets it slide. Even though he's part of like law enforcement, he's like, you know what? He deserved it. I ain't gonna say nothing. And uh, Cecilia calls 911 and makes out, um, you know, the better situation. I think, did she say he did it himself? Something like that. Um, yeah, she made it look like he did it to himself on that, on the cameras. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, as you said, this is satisfying AF. Like, exactly like Midsummer. It's such a you go girl moment. Um, is there anything else you guys want to add about the ending where you just like, oh, yes. Yes, Cecilia. You know, I, I, I have thoughts and I, I'm not sure which thought I want to go with, with her having the suit, taking it with her. Is it so no one else can have it? Or is it like a trophy type thing? Like I fucking won and, you know, um, but I like to think that it's probably because she doesn't want this to happen to anyone else. She doesn't want people to have the technology to do shit like this. Um, you know, I want to think that, but you know, it's, it's kind of ambiguous. It's really what you want to take away from that, that, that she took the suit with her, you know, after, you know, proving everybody like, Hey, I didn't do this. Look at this shit. Not, not me. Um, 
you know, all the things that she had been attributed to. And, but the thing that she did do, she got away with, she fully uh, didn't do that um, because of the suit. So, you know, that's the thing is, I guess I was, you know, to, to Handmaid's Tale with that little bit, like uh, the June Osborne in her would be like, okay, I've got your fucking suit and now I'm in control. You know, it, it these kind of things transform you. And, um, you know, sometimes not always for the best, but I, I want to believe the best. I, I mean, I think we all do. It was such a satisfying ending, you know, but that look on her face with her in the suit, I'm kind of like, hmm. I want to hope that it's just so it won't happen to anybody else. Or maybe she wants to do some kind of office space, you know, where they're smashing the printer to it or, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> moment, I, this is good. you know, in my mind, I'm like trying to like write a little bit further, you know, but uh, it is a powerful ending. Yeah, that's true. Cause it's quite ambiguous near the end with that smile. It's almost kind of villain-esque. And you think like anybody that was put through everything that she was put through, you wouldn't be surprised if it made them, kind of vengeful and we we have heard stories of people being abused becoming abusers themselves and it could easily go down that route um Lindsay what do you think of that like do you like to think that she's just keeping it as a trophy or you know there is maybe a possibility she'd maybe go down a villain arc I don't I thought of it maybe I watched too many crime shows I thought of it more as her like cleaning up the evidence because oh, yeah. if it's there she'll have like hair and skin and stuff in it um and to kind of eliminate the possibility of the police thinking that there, if there's another suit or maybe somebody put on the suit and did it she's just hiding it so it's just like no everyone's just going to think this is a suicide I've got it on video um there's going to be no room for debate on this so she takes it to like just make sure that that's it like this part of our life is now done there's no room for anybody to start digging around and wonder what else could have happened because this is what's happened and I've made sure that everybody thinks that this is what happened yeah and it could definitely be also like all of the above you know yeah absolutely yeah so uh, yeah it, it's a it's a great ending you know when you have so many different ways it could go um but yeah, I, I never thought about the whole evidence thing. I thought it was more, I was thinking more of like trophy. I guess I was putting myself in like this sort of survival aspect. Like this this is going to make sure it's never going to happen again. And uh, I don't want anybody else to use this technology and, and whatever. But yeah, evidence. I didn't, I didn't think about that. I didn't think. <laughs> this is what I don't do the tri- true crime shit. Uh, Sean's into that. And um Everybody on the House of Screams is into that, but I can't do true crime because I get, for as much as I love gore and everything, I get too upset about true crime. It makes me very sad. So, uh, you know, I, I just, I emotionally can't handle that. But yeah, that's that's a good point. This is why Lindsay would be the one to get away with murder. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cross me. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's the ending of The Invisible Man. Is there anything else you two want to cover before we get into our own ratings? I just think it's a really good depiction as somebody who's been through not one, not two, but three abusive relationships. Um, it, it's it's a very good allegory for you know um, what ab- abuse does to you, how you feel. Um, it does it 
quite literally here um, in this film, but I always uh, try to draw attention to domestic violence, uh, you know, um, domestic violence survivors. Some, some don't survive, some have, you know, bad wife syndrome, some are killed. But uh, this uh, took all that and just kind of, you know, it showed gaslighting, it showed uh, physical abuse, it showed sexual abuse. The one didn't show that, but it was implied. Um, you know, and, and I like a movie that has an important message like that. So I applaud that. And this is the experiences that you feel and, and go through watching this film, you kind of get an idea of what it's like to be stuck um, with this person stalking and hurting you and threatening you and trying to mentally and physically survive it. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Lindsay, is there anything else that you want to add? Just that, like, this is such a great film. And like Candy said, like, I think a lot of people will be able to see themselves in this or see their own situations in this. Um, it, like Midsummer, there's just a catharsis in this. Like, I'm so glad that we got the happy ending. I think, like, we were talking before about, like, different genres and stuff before. And I feel like maybe if this was a drama, it would have gone down a completely depressing route and, like, Cecilia would have died and it would have been like, oh, we wanted to bring the realism to it. But with horror, it's just, like, we've we've had the really scary part and they gave us that relief at the end that Cecilia survives, she gets her revenge and she can go on to live a hopefully a happier life now. Yes, this is very true. Um, one thing that I want to add is just, I think this movie does get a lot of credit from special effects, but I think for the budget, a $7 million budget is pretty low budget and, you know, Lee Winnell in the um, cast have talked before about they did use a mix of obviously like fully um, full body suits um, you know green body suits but they also used things as simple as pieces of string and like I think the special effects in this is done so well you know me and Lindsay you know we've talked time and time again where practical effects stand the test of time and sometimes special effects and CGI really does just not hit the mark and it's just some really high budgets and they just don't do it justice but I think the combination of both works really well here and kind of like Midsummer. I'm just going to a little bit of like trivia you know so much of what's done in The Invisible Man from Lee Winnell is very purposeful um you know I've spoken before about the reason they didn't give any backstory to Adrian and to Cecilia is because they really wanted people to feel like being in Cecilia's shoes um you know that first scene where it's straight into it um so we can feel everything for her and no words are spoken in those first like five ten minutes but the audience knows everything even things down to like Cecilia's name I think um yeah the name of uh, Cecilia is derived from Latin which means blind or eyeless and throughout the film they call Cecilia C which um is pronounced like C so blind invisible man but also maybe being blind to all the abuse that you've been through through the years um you know, being in denial and there's loads of little things like that. And um, I just think with the budget they had, there's some really good like behind the scenes clips on YouTube of like how they film this and stuff. And it's just like, 
a real love letter to special effects. Um, the camera work in this film is incredible. Like the scene where in the hospital where um, Adrian's like being up all the guards and stuff and the way the camera moves around and there's like one of the fight scenes in the house between Cecilia and Adrian like in the invisible suit they use like motion camera like a motion work camera to like follow them all around and Elizabeth Moss had to act while also like Lee Winnell is doing this count so that she hits particular beats on particular numbers for the camera so she had to like act and listen at the same time and it just seems like such a great like collaborative project between the actors and the director and the cinematographers it's just I think it's just an absolutely fantastic film yeah and and Lee Winnell um his first, uh, you know, film majorly was Saw, was with, and it was with James Wan. Uh, we just recently covered the the new movie Malignant on our show that James Wan did, and James Wan also has a great relationship with camera work. So, and they're and they're bros. So it's it's uh, they, they both have that brilliance um, as you know directors, um, and you know working great with uh, cinematography that's fluid and interesting. And and keeps you know it just keeps you going. It's it's just so fascinating, smooth and slick. And also, House that screams, we have a hard and fast rule. Practical effects are the only way to go, unless you're dabbling in a little bit of sci-fi, because otherwise you're dating the shit out of it. Practical effects, like I'm wearing a Day of the Dead shirt from George Romero. We all know I love Romero, but uh. Tom Savini did the effects on that, all practical, and they still fucking look good today. And that movie was done in 1985. It did not age. It looks phenomenal because practical effects. And I think uh, when a director has a lower budget to work with in horror, particularly, they they get more creative. And, uh, you know, we saw a lot of creativity here. Yeah, definitely. Me, like said, me and Lindsay are both massive fans of practical effects, and it stands the test of time. Like, how many movies from the eighties, the seventies, the sixties? Some of them almost leave more of an impression on us than modern blockbusters because you do have to be creative. Um, but with that, unless there's anything else, we shall get into our ratings. So, um, we'll start off with you, Candy, for this one. What do you rate The Invisible Man out of ten? I feel like I'm getting a little personal with this, but um, like it, it, it's my ratings based on my feelings, not necessarily, um, you know, like critiquing. Um, my feelings are really important to me, but I, I have to do this a 10 out of 10. Um, I know I just gave both movies a 10 out of 10, but both movies mean a lot to me. They have something to say. Um, this film it really shows uh, the realism uh, of domestic abuse, like I said, which is one of my causes that I, I speak out on quite a bit uh, and, and what it's like to survive and how it changes you and how frightening it is. And it's such an allegory uh, in so many ways to, you know, it, it tends to be, you know, um, happens in all relationships, but uh, particularly there's a lot of, women being abused by men, sorry. I mean, it, that's just in these relationships. And uh, 
the women, it's so hard for them. They have to really save themselves. And I like that, you know, this was just a, a great way of showing that, that enough is enough, basically. So 10 out of 10. Um, yeah, 10 out of 10. Another 10 out of 10. Ain't nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Lindsay, or are you going to rate The Invisible Man out of 10? Um, I'm going to give this film, again, a 9 out of 10. Um, like, where, like, where are the flaws in this film? There aren't any. It's, it's such a great film. It is amazing acting. The direction is fantastic, as well as the cinematography. Um, it's unfortunate that this is kind of a universal story for people. Like, if you haven't been in those kind of relationships, you probably know somebody that has been. Um, and the discrepancies in power between men and women are something that unfortunately don't seem to be changing anytime soon so this is something that's unfortunately relatable for many many people um, I think it's a great twist update on the Invisible Man's story um, we kind of mentioned earlier on about how like all the different um, like universal monsters um, and it's nice that we're getting one with a bit more of a modern twist. We very well could have gone down a campy route with this, and we didn't. We went down a very realistic route with it, and we got an absolutely fantastic film out of it. We did. We did. And as you both said, I mean, these are both two really recent movies, 2019 and 2020, and both of them deal with abusive relationships from men. That's not to say anyone can be abused. And, you know, as I was mentioning before about that novel in The Dream House, which is about a queer relationship. And in that, um, Carmen Mercado talks about how, um, you know, people assume you can't be abused if you're in a queer relationship. There's always this depiction of two women in a relationship where people assume that can't happen. That's definitely not the case. But statistics do speak for themselves. Unfortunately, there is so many women that have been put in these situations and it is don't want it to be the norm but it's it, it is something that's very prevalent and it's important for these stories to be shown and horror is one of those genres that um has been kind of paving that way for me yeah horror is such a great platform for really anything um because you have so much creative license you know to stick to a formula yeah exactly there's no rules um I'm going to be giving this another 10 out of 10. <laughs> I'm not the only one, yay. I feel like I can not give this a 10 out of 10 and give Midsummer a 10 out of 10. Like you said, where's the flaws? This is such a great film on a pretty low budget. I mean, Midsummer was nine, this was seven. Um, but I think it's such a unique take on a universal monster movie. Elizabeth Moss is fantastic in this. The cinematography the effects everything like it's just near perfect um so I don't think we have a winner this week I think both movies are like pretty on par with each other I would say um, absolutely I think it's interesting that both uh breakup films that were chosen were um abusive in one way or another and I wanted to add on to something you said Lucy um you know um it's not just straight relationships, like hetero relationships that have this. Um, both of my brothers are gay, uh, they're twins. Um, one just got married and the other one 
got divorced, but he was being, uh, his uh, husband was abusive towards him. And, you know, he's just, you know, went through the divorce and, and kind of moved away trying to rebuild his life. Cause I mean, it fucks you up. You, you have to rebuild yourself from, you know, the ground up after something like that. And, and, you know, try to be better. And some people like, it just causes so many problems down the line, drug abuse, uh, suicide, uh, repeatings of abuse, but yes, uh, it definitely happens in queer relationships. Uh, it, it's, it's prevalent. Even you couldn't have friends who are toxic and will do these things to you who are, are abusive. I mean, like people are like abusive friends. Yes. You can be in toxic friendships. So yeah, I wanted to say, yeah. Um, I've definitely seen, you know, in, in, in all relationships, like, you know, like it happened to my brother and his husband. So, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, hetero man, you know, abuses woman, not that that's not always the case. Definitely. And family dynamics as well. Family dynamics between parents and children, anyone, any relationship can, can turn toxic. Yeah, uh, my family toxic as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that is our episode on breakup movies. You know, folks, I think these are both really good movies for a sleepover if you or your friends have just gone through a shitty relationship you know you want to see some men getting their comeuppance you want some revenge I think these are both great films to watch with cool friends um thank you so much Candy for joining us today and um for just being your wonderful self as always and great fun <laughs> um, thank you so much um I'm so glad to uh, have been on this episode and um, I know we'll all be working together in the future. Um, you guys are going to be on my show and I would love to come back. And I think you guys would enjoy Eric. You guys know Erica. Um, you know, she's always got unique points of view. So, uh, you know, um, I, I, I really love this and so glad to be a part of it. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And we love the House of Screams fam and your Ghouls Night In and Final Girl Cosmetics. We love all of it. Um, thank you. Next week, Lindsay, do you want to introduce our theme for next week? And we have another special guest next week as well. Uh, so next week's theme is as if it's 90s night. <laughs> and we're going to be joined by Phil and Laura from the Horror Project. So They're lovely. We love Phil and Laura. Um, Lindsay, what are the movies for As If 90s Night? <laughs> uh, so the films we're going to be covering next week are I Know What You Did Last Summer oh, and <laughs> Scream. At least it's not The Craft. <laughs> if you ever listened to uh, Eric and I, we did a goal, our last goals line out before the most recent one we released today was The Craft. I, I think a lot of people were upset about that. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually an anti-feminist film, Snake Peak. I actually, it's Lucy picked, has picked one of the films and obviously the horror project has picked the other one. But when like 
well, it's a horror project. I gave them a few themes and they picked this. And I was actually like, the 90s is actually a massive blind spot for me in terms of horror because I was struggling to think of something because I haven't seen, I know what you did last summer, I haven't seen The Craft, like The Blair Witch Project is another one that comes up that's like a big 90s film. It's like, I haven't seen that either. So You just recently did Scream and- um, I've seen Scream. All over 90s horror all the time. I'm like, we had the (laughs) in the 80s which is, you know, my introduction because I'm fucking old, Um, but (laughs) I grew up with that shit. So the 90s, I call it the puritanical times of horror. It was toned down. It wasn't as good. We have a couple of things like Candyman that was great, a couple things, but yeah, most of that shit is just like, ugh. So which scream episode? The scream episode is going to, we scream in the scream episode. I will tell you that much. But you are in the house that screams, so it's to be expected. Yeah, there's, a, there's some screaming and scream. <laughs> well, be sure to check out that episode, folks. Uh, thank you all for listening. Um, hope you have a great hump day. And until next time, stay spooky. <laughs> <laughs>